0: The Isle of Faces, welcome to Scraps and the Scrolls, part 16 of wow. oh, the Storm of Swords, the companion to history of Westeros' Valhalla Readers project. Hi, how are you all? I am, of course, Sir Berkeley, talking to you from sunny, kind of cloudy. No, we're, we're getting blue sky today. Blue sky, England, and a very, very lovely Isle of Faces, of course, is my favourite place to be. And I'll be your host, your top green man, green folk, today, take you through this our second to last storm of swords so you know it's going to be a big one as always i hope you've enjoyed history of westeros's live stream yesterday i'm recording this here on the monday morning it's a lot of stuff going on there's a lot to talk about so don't worry we've got plenty of scraps and scrolls for you and hopefully as always i feel like i'm just repeating myself every week but it's a tough time well aware of that of course hoping this podcast and the other episodes we get out here on the aisle can provide some comfort some distraction some entertainment whatever it may be. I know it's getting repetitive. I know I'm saying the same thing every week, but remain vigilant out there. Stay home if you can. You're saving lives that way. All of that stuff. Don't be a dingbat about it like some, unfortunately, are. And to be honest, I'm not going to name names or anything like that, but we have had messages from from patrons, from public listeners, saying either that the Isle of Faces has been a comfort or a distraction, or just telling us the hard time they're going through at the moment in many different ways. Some people because they're on the front lines, they're essential workers, some because they've got family members, not in the best of ways, or some because they're stuck at home and it's rough and they miss their friends and we can all sympathize. So again, if you do need to reach out or if you just want to have a chat, I encourage you to. Whether that's me, whether that's someone else, don't suffering science so get through this in a team play we need a zone offense to get through this and we just love hearing from you anyway tell me tell me what you've been up to in your quarantine what extra thing have you been doing if you've been able to at all if you're an essential worker tell me what you've been doing tell me about how hard it is i'd I listen all day because so i love you guys you're doing really well you're saving us all whatever role that is in the kind of essential worker realm so whoever you are whatever you're doing keep it up and the other faces will keep chugging along to uh to cheer you up On that vein, before we get going today, news time, because as I mentioned last week, Sporkle Spectacular is back, it's making a return, that's all recorded for you, it's in the editing process, don't worry, that's going to be finished soon, so for patrons, you can expect that probably either tomorrow, Tuesday, maybe Wednesday, everybody else, you're looking at Thursday, Friday or Saturday, we'll see how that pans out, but it's coming, we've got new Sporkle Spectacular Clash of Kings closing sentences, and I can tell you now, Not with one guest, but two. Yes, that's right, two. It's going to be a head-to-head, which means I didn't get a go, obviously. Don't worry, because patrons, you're going to get me just having a go with Lady Buckley asking me the questions before I recorded this, obviously. So that's another extra bonus episode. So as many as three episodes for our patrons this week, and two for everyone else. So it's a busy, busy old week on the other faces. As for who those guests were, our brilliant guests, I was very lucky to get on. I'll do some kind of marketing and uh, put my head on here. I'll leave it until our halfway shoutouts to tell you. You've got to wait at least until then to hear who our special guests were. Then you can find out after. On top of that for patrons as well, the patron-only episode is going the big one, the Storm's End chapter reading. That's going to be mostly be done in the gap between Storm of Swords and Feast of Crows, so you can expect it not long after that. And while we're here, while I'm saying thank you to all our essential key workers, let me say another sincere and heartfelt thank you. To all our wonderful patrons we're lucky enough to have some newbies again this week and okay, keep coming it's so appreciated if you do want to check that out you know where to find us patroncom slash faces. of course we would love to see you there and specifically i would like to thank lady raj mistress of force Arx June June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, and of course Jennifer as well. is so much appreciated, as are all our wonderful patrons. Looking forward very much so to giving you some extra episodes this week and in the coming weeks. And Sporkle Spectacular, I can confirm without telling you who it was. Real blast, real, a lot of fun. And... Some good scores as well. I'm not going to tell you now who got what, how did I do, percentages. You'll have to tune in for that. But make sure you do go back and listen to our other Sporkle Spectaculars first, if you haven't already. And as always, send in your scores. Have a go. We'd love like to interact with you. Even if it doesn't have to be public. I won't retweet it if you don't want me to. Just send me a message. Just talk to me on Patreon. Just talk to me on the email. I don't mind. We'd just like to hear that uh, you're having a go. It's always fun to do these things together. But now, it's a big old episode. It's obviously... We are right in the middle of it here. Well, we're not in the middle, are we? We're at the end. We're in the middle of the end and everything is flying here, there and everywhere. So a reminder before we get going of our chapters today. We have Jamie 9, John 10, Aya 13, Sam 4 and John 11. Well, we're as close to the end as we can get without actually being there, but we really get to feel it as two more characters wave goodbye this week. First Jamie and then Aya, although one of those is a much more definitive end than the other and probably the more important for the book. Aya has the most chapters in Storm after all, but then you could argue that Jaime's emergence as a POV is a larger feature of the story. Either way, they've both seen different sides of the fight in the Riverlands, and they've both ended up leaving it. Jaime for his new life in King's Landing, Arya for a new life who knows where. And considering the final dark and bloody gate she has to pass through to leave Westeros entirely, well this is obviously as big of a chapter as we're ever going to get for her. With Daenerys, Bran, Davos and Catelyn, sob sob sob, Already having left us, that means the only remaining storylines not included today are Sansa and Tyrion. Sansa has the honour of the final, explosive chapter, while George intentionally makes us wait to find out Tyrion's fate and the absolutely gigantic acts that come in this final POV. That means the rest of today is made up of Castle Black, with one Sam and two Johns. I'm pretty sure this is the first time we've ever had two John chapters in one episode through any of the first three books, and clearly Castle Black is not used to this type of frequency. But this is a time of change and upheaval, Probably even more than we see at the end of Game or Clash, if I'm honest. Game might have had more change on a personal level to many of our characters, but this is a national change in Castle Black, down in King's Landing, everywhere. Remember, though A Song of Ice and Fire is so rich and wonderful you can blindly throw a dart and hit a masterpiece, we are immersed in what is generally considered the critical peak of the entire series in Storm's final act. This book is a force of nature even larger than its name, and we are pretty damn lucky to be rereading such. So, let's begin with an ending as one of the key features that makes Storm, Storm, Jamie's arc in humanisation, come to a close. Kind of. Let's start with Jamie 9. I say kind of because the critical action of Jamie's time in King's Landing is actually going to happen in Tyrion's final chapter next week, and not from Jamie's viewpoint at all. That's quite a ballsy move from George, though of course, someone out of here in Tyrion essentially had to miss out, and the moment is clearly more important for Tyrion. But still, it's a big decision to have put so much effort into opening Jaime up as a character, and if not actually transforming him from a villain to a hero, then making him a real person that we are truly interested in. Only a few characters have more depth on layers than Jaime Lannister. So to leave the big event of his ending to another POV is weighty, but I actually think makes a lot of sense for Jaime. The big act that defined his life for so long when he became the Kingslayer has always been wrapped up in how outsiders viewed him and judged him, so I feel like this is a little nod to that when we are again not given access to him later on. But we are for now and even if the act comes later, we'll still serve to a culmination of an arc as the foundation for that later act is formed and Jamie comes to major, major decisions about who he is as a person. We've only had three quick chapters of King's Landing, in Jaime compared to six in the Riverlands, but his time here has perfectly encapsulated the change he's been through. We've had him go up against Cersei and Tywin, we've had him really invest himself as Lord Commander, now we're going to see those threads prove out as Jamie realises he is not the same man and no longer connects with this city if he ever did. The fact he interacts chiefly with Brienne and Cersei here is specific. They are the two representations for his Riverlands time and his King's Landing time, respectively. He symbolically splits from one, while physically splitting from the other, while still investing his soul in her given quest. Yes, remember that while this is a Jaime chapter, it's an incredibly important marker for Brienne's life as well. The chapter itself begins with our first look at King Tommen, long may he reign, although I wouldn't hold your breath, and he is being set up as we will see him for the remainder of the series, a puppet manipulated by his elders. We'll have a lot of time to discuss Tommen once we get to Feast, he barely gets any more mentions during Storm, but it's still sad to see him pretty much become a human stamp here. He is an item for use by his family, and very few caring for him as a person. Cersei loves him, truly, but a lot of that love is possessive and not in the form that it should be. Luckily, we will see and gain a mini-arc of his own in Feast when he does start to rebel against Cersei a bit, but the idea of him just being a ham about to be ripped open by differing parties is very real. He is hoping he's able to escape such a fate in Winds, but again... I wouldn't hold your breath. Going through the motions of who now owns what and what's been happening politically and on the scale of the Seven Kingdoms in this book also makes it feel like we are very close to the end. This is a roundup of the change, a bland historical summary to counteract the fierce emotion we've actually had being there, being present for the duration of this book. This is how it will all be remembered, this is what it has all meant. And of course, it's not what we want to see, with prizes going to the Freys and Bolton's, among others. Some of that is set up for the five-year gap, it has to be all doom and gloom before the supposedly coming vengeance arrives, but it also just frames everything we've seen in a different light, one of documents and bureaucracy and signing, and as Jamie says, boredom. Here's your first quote of the day. If this was power, why did it taste like tedium? He did not feel especially powerful, watching Tom and dip his quill into the ink pot again. He felt bored. Considering he will later think on how much he always hated Robert Baratheon, Jamie Shaw is approaching this meeting the same way the former king would have. Jamie definitely hasn't bothered to develop any of those paternal instincts he was wondering about a little while ago with his second son. In fact, he makes almost no reference to Tommen being his son here. Instead, we have confirmation of what we've always heard about Jamie. He really doesn't have any interest in power. Quite the opposite. The details and realities, as such, just don't take up any of his attention. Already, he's the bored jock thinking of getting out there and throwing the ball around a bit. Unfortunately. That ain't going so well either, as Jamie daydreams about how badly his sparring session with Adam Marbrand went. We've already had a few hints about how this was likely to go in Jamie's previous King's Landing chapters, but now we, and more importantly Jamie, have definitive proof. All of his amazing talent he's had basically his entire life I means naught now, even when he believed it could be transferable to his left hand. That is a pretty major realisation, just to ask any athlete how important a skill is to a person's soul. For Jamie to truly find out he's lost it, that there's no safety net, is, like I say, major. Now, this is only day one, in fairness, and we know Jamie doesn't give up. A major feature of his feast chapters are his secret nighttime spas spars of ill and pain, which he seems to have the idea for in a moment. So I'm still waiting to find out if Jamie does recover some form of skill with that left hand. Corrin Halfhand made himself a master of his left, and it feels like that was included specifically as a precursor to Jamie's situation. But who's to say? Some people are naturally more ambidextrous. Some are more applicable to learning and hard work. Will Jamie be able to put in the same effort now as a jaded knight as a jaded lord commander, as he did as a fresh faced teen. Time will tell, I suppose. For now, it funnels him ever more to developing those leadership skills we've talked about multiple times in its recent chapters. This is your royal pardon for Lord Gowan Westerling, his lady wife, and his daughter Jane, welcoming them back into their king's peace, so Kevin said. Before Jamie has enough of the procedural stuff, we get this little nugget, which is going to be very important going forward, coincidentally for Jamie when he eventually returns to Riverrun. And this is one of those things that really does slip by you on the first read the hints of the Spicers and Westlings being involved in the whole setup of the Red Wedding, or otherwise, why would they be getting restored into the King's Peace so quickly? And don't forget Rol Spicer, Jane's uncle and Sibyl Spicer's brother, that Grey Wind growled at. He's also getting Castamere to make him a lord of actual land now. Perhaps Sybil has already sent word that she's dealt with the possibility of a Rob heir and has earned the pardon. But as I say, this is more set up for getting a proper meeting with Sybil Spicer and Feast, instead of the brief one we had in Catelyn's earlier chapters. In that later meeting, she's going to ask for much more than a pardon, but luckily, Jamie gives her what for. Those aren't the only nuggets that get slipped in early here. This isn't the first mention of the phrase getting Riverrun, but it is a confirmation and a reminder how much is changing. Riverrun has been the Tully since its creation and has ruled the Riverlands for 300 years. This type of shift in terms of castles and places of power just doesn't happen all that often throughout history. We're in a major moment here, and all of it is just a big insult for us Tully fans. It might be the first news of Ramsay becoming legitimised, I'm not sure. That'd mean very little to a first time reader, because chances are you didn't catch all that reek stuff first time around anyway, and you probably didn't think Ramsay is going to be that big of a deal going forward. We've got all that to come, don't worry. At least we get a little gap before all that. When Jamie leaves, we get a quick mention of the gift that Kevin and Tywin have sent him, which re-readers will know to be Oathkeeper. I can only imagine Jamie dreamt of having his own Valyrian steel sword for many a year, but receiving it now, of all times, is cruel mockery indeed. Any time after losing his hand would have been bad. But right after this sparring session with Adam Marbrand, yeah, that's, that's pretty annoying. Incidentally, Kevin saying we and becoming distressed when it's clear Jamie doesn't like the gift makes me think it was him pushing Tywin to make an attempt to bridge the gap between him and Jamie. Kevin definitely wouldn't want any of his suggestions to earn him a scolding with the big bro. And also on the way out the door, we get a reminder of the worries about Merrin that Jamie had last week, all the more troubling now after the failed sparring session. Merrin actually seems pretty compliant towards Jamie here, and maybe has settled in after he's talking to by Jamie in Whitesword Tower but i put good money on him betraying his Lord Commander at the first possible chance. Outside, we get another essential throwaway scene, when Jamie says goodbye, not only to Steelshank's Walton, but Arya Stark as well, apparently. On her back was mounted a skinny, hollow-eyed girl, wrapped in a heavy cloak. The girl's long brown hair blew wild in the wind. She had a pretty face, he thought, but her eyes were sad and wary. <sighs> okay, here we go. This has my vote for the saddest moment for all Storm of Swords. Truly. I spoke a lot, a lot, a lot about the tragedy of Jane Poole and the pure evilness of Peter Baelish back in Game of Thrones and this is just straight up continuation of that as you realise what's actually going on here. How long ago does Ned's fall actually seem like? It is ages, it is a long time. And it turns out that entire time Jane has been... Well, I'm not going to go into details about exactly what she's been up to but it honestly gets right into my soul probably more than anything else in these books. Especially when we get that note of her eyes. Hollow, sad wary okay yeah it's tough this is a girl the same age as sansa but think of what she's learnt of the world it's unimaginable for first time readers it's horrible to realize what's become of jane when we might have assumed that george just forgot about her wouldn't that have been nice if she just kind of got written out and we can just make up our own future for her for re-readers well i really can't begin to tackle what she will go through in the future for now is enough to say that nothing nothing makes me blaze so angry about peter baelish as all this stuff to do with jane paul his creepiness when he claimed her in game the way he's just stashed her away doing what she's been doing and how she's now been sold off even stormier skies there are a lot of crimes to lay at peter baelish's feet but this would be the first one i'd bring up if i ever got within an arms reach of him jamie takes a second to update us on what's actually going on with the fake hire deal but his mind is already busy with the possibility of other stark girls but that's not till later for now, he's distracted by the fact he's standing in the very place where his brother's fate was decided. A few of the horses still shied away from the dark splotch on the hard-packed ground while the earth had drunk the life's blood of the stable boy Gregor again had killed so clumsily. The sight of it made Jamie angry all over again. I think it's a real nice note on Jamie's changed personality and priorities that he gives the stable boy any fault at all. From there, we get an update of Gregor's condition, which is at least a bit of a cheer-up from the end of the trial as we find out he's in horrific pain. We've certainly not come across any injury this gruesome just yet. I mean, it's taking out the leeches, man, and the most powerful creatures in Westeros according to our good friend Melisandre. We get to remember Oberyn's affinity for poisons when Pycelle admits he's got no clue what he's dealing with here, and as old and doddery as the Grand Maester is, he does seem to know his poisons, all of which has only frustrated Tywin, which keeps us in a good mood again. Here's the next quote. But it must be seen to be the sword of the King's justice that slays him, not a poisoned spear. Heal him. Grand Maester Pycelle blinked in dismay. My lord... Heal him, Lord Tywin said again, vexed. This particularly reminds me of how Cersei will deal with Pycelle and Feast. No thinking, no consideration. Pycelle's just laid out the problem, but the Lannises aren't ones for asking about how. They want results, and they want obedience. We also find out something else incredibly key. Stannis is seemingly left Dragonstone. Obviously we're going to find out the result of this in the next chapter, but first we get Tywin making some incredibly wrong guesses, as fun as Stannis plus Dawn might have been. It's yet more enjoyable to see Tywin be so wrong. But to be fair to him i don't think anyone would have guessed stannis's actual destination i do think this stuff on tywin goes to show he is not confident in lannister's current position at all the war might be technically over but he knows the possibilities of what could happen that's good we don't want him feeling any comfort or satisfaction before Tyrion's final chapter and it just goes to show the state of affairs that cersei is going to inherit and make even worse from there jamie heads back to white sword tower the symbol of his newfound focus but finds it filled with cersei the symbol of his weakness and abuse The bay wind swirled around her, flattening her gown against her body in a way that quickened Jamie's pulse. It was white, that gown, like the hangings on the wall and the draperies on his bed. To be fair, Cersei knows what she's doing here. This is the oldest offence in her playbook, and the mention of emeralds reminds me of when she tried to seduce Eddard Stark in her hunting greens. But while Cersei has brought it in terms of looks, we quickly learn she's only here because things have started going wrong for her. Tywin has finally had enough of the facade and kicked her off the small council. Pretty clever move, well done Tywin, so she's fallen back on her other male influence to try and find support there. Must you be so stubborn? All he wants is to force me from the Kingsguard and send me back to Cassidy Rock. That need not be so terrible. He is sending me back to Castley Rock as well. I love this line because it seems like a complete reflection or inversion of the argument that originally got Jaime to join the Kingsguard and go to King's Landing in the first place. It's some brilliant irony that we can now see the reverse. We can also see the blueprint of how this relationship has always worked. Something upsets Cersei, or Cersei needs something, so she comes to Jamie in a low cut dress, pushes his buttons, and he goes along with it, because the blood is always pooling in the wrong place. But again, this is not the same Jamie, and finally this cycle of abuse is going to change. The conversation turns from Cersei and Jamie living happily ever after, although note that she is simultaneously asking for Jamie to sort it so that she can stay in the city, while also saying how nice it'd be for both of them to be at the rock. Hm. The conversation turns from that onto Tom and being snapped up by multiple parties as we discussed earlier. And you might also remember from a few weeks ago, when we spoke about Tywin's apparent plan to just rid himself of family Lannister and take over Tommen for himself and it seems like he's going all in on that now. It's kind of a shame he gets cut short, I would have liked to see how far he got with it. Even with Cersei outright bringing up the fact that Tommen is Jaime's son, he still manages to quickly skip over that idea for something else. Robert's death still left a bitter taste in Jaime's mouth. It should have been me who killed him, not Cersei. I only wish he'd died at my hands when I still had two of them. I'm glad we're getting this little line on this subject. Again, When Jamie first returned to the city, we thought about how long it had actually been since he was around and how much has changed. Robert was a pretty key part of that pie, so I'm not surprised Jamie is focusing in on him now. The man represented years and years of frustration for Jamie, and even though Jamie was cooking him for all that time, to Jamie it probably felt the other way around. He had Cersei first, he loved her the most. No doubt, Jamie spent many a long hour of duty daydreaming about killing his second king. It's also a good way to keep Jamie fans tethered. Yes, he feels bad about the stable boy but he's still wishing that he got to murder someone who's recently passed. Even more interestingly, when Jamie again brings up the idea of going public, we return to the first meet-up we ever had between these two, as they finally, finally, openly discuss pushing Bran out of the window. I'm not ashamed of loving you. Only the things I've done to hide it. That boy at Winterfell. This is a pretty major moment, an actual conversation by the two people present and one of the major inciting incidents of the whole series, and certainly a core inciting incident for the actual war. First things first, Jamie feels ashamed of pushing Bran out of the window. That's, that's a pretty huge step for Jamie. The lone time he thought about Bran earlier in this book, it was a wave off where he basically admitted he'd do it all again if it meant he could have a chance of betting Cersei. But now, actual shame. I feel that we should have the party poppers ready for this breakthrough. But when the conversation transforms from Bran's fall to Bran's near murder by the cat's paw, Jamie actually does a way better job than Tyrion did with investigating the dagger by teaming up quickly with Cersei. Perhaps Marcella sent this man with the dagger. Do you think so? It was meant as mockery but she'd cut right to the heart of it, Jamie saw at once. Not Marcella, Joffrey. Just like that, Jamie figures out what is our best guess for what truly happened to Bran. It further removes him from having any caring thoughts for Joffrey. Unfortunately, he uses this newfound information as another way to condemn Tyrion. It all takes me back to that Lannister lunch back in Winterfell. The one time the three of them were together, all of their personal points of information that they refused to quite share. Imagine if they were all in the same room now and discussing what happened with the paw. The whole thing could be sorted out in ten minutes. But that's just not the Lannister way and as quickly as it comes up, the conversation moves on again. Just before we go with it, even Cersei notes that Bran was nothing to Joffrey. There was zero reason for this other than pure cruelty. She's actually using it as a defence, but she's dead on. That's what Tyrion hypothesised, it's what Cersei is too blind to see, and it's what Jaime couldn't care less about. What I like most about this Jaime-Cersei scene, is even though Cersei arrives with a game plan and in her best gear, she does actually let her guard down and becomes quite genuine more genuine than we ever see her to be honest, other than those rare scenes where her and Tyrion forgot they were enemies for a few seconds in Clash of Kings. But obviously she's even more open with Jamie. The first instance comes when they discuss the cat's paw, but it's much more prominent as she reveals her pain at Joffrey's death and how desperately she wants to keep hold of Tommen. That's when she's at her most real, then, well, then and when she gets rejected by Jamie. But her desire for Jamie's help is completely genuine, it's true. She probably would have had better success if she would stuck with that emotional honesty, the blueprints of their relationship take over and Cersei finds herself following the same old script when she asks him to speak to Tywin for her, even if that means leaving the Kingsguard. When Jamie finally grows his backbone and refuses, we get this nice little preview of the sibling's situation come the end of dance. His sister fought back to his. Jamie, you're my shining knight. You cannot abandon me when I need you most. And so that's a nice reminder that this specific scene is the basis for their entire rocky relationship throughout Feast. Everything that we're going to see, all the arguments and the coldness, that's going to trace right back to here. She follows that by bringing up her new prospective marriage. Because she's truly worried about it, or because she knows that will incite Jamie's jealousy and she'd be that much more likely to get what she wants. I know which one I'd vote for is more likely. The pair rehash their old conversation about going public and how terrible a plan that seems to Cersei. I particularly like the We Are Not Targaryens line. Though many use that as fodder for certain theories that I don't agree with, I think it serves better as an indictment for the whole family. However much they position themselves to be, they simply aren't rulers, they aren't royal, and it shows. But with everything else failing, Cersei goes for her old reliable, her sexuality. Obviously hints aren't enough, this is going to need a physical touch. And so we arrive at maybe the key moment in their relationship, Jaime refusing Cersei. Jaime felt himself responding. No, he said, not here. They had never done it in Whitesword Tower, much less in the Lord Commander's chambers. Cersei, this is not the place. This has probably never ever happened before. Jaime is always the one wanting, the one asking. He's the addict. Cersei takes as much joy in it as he, but has always been the one in control. Jamie noted she has always made him come to her when he returned to the city, so even her kicking things off is enough of a deviation, but for him to turn her down? Unthinkable. Jamie's body is willing, but his spirit is not. Why? Well, while there are reasons to turn him off from Cersei more than usual, the main reason is location. He didn't even dare to besmirch the tower in their youth when he hardly cared about anything. There's no way he is going to dishonour the building, the order, the memory of those who came before him and his own efforts to actually do something right for once. It would have been a very slippery slope if Jamie had given in here, and he would have lost so much of the self-respect and self-worth he's been trying to build up. Instead, he stays true to the man he's trying to be, and we have to admire him for it. Cersei even points out that they did it in a sept, a place more holier than this, but that simply isn't true for Jamie. It's still a huge slap for Cersei though. This is supposed to be her sure thing. If there was something she had to bet the whole house on, it'd be her ability to seduce Jamie. So I actually find myself feeling for her a bit when she's genuinely confused and hurt for a moment. This relationship is everything, it's the eternal, and only she gets to turn down sex. For a woman whose strength is so rooted in her beauty and sexuality, it's extra rough, and we get to see her being genuinely genuine once again. Because her ego is so bruised and hurt, she immediately strikes out to try and make her twin feel the same. She goes for his manhood, his courage, but ends up hitting the mark when Tyrion comes up again. Oh, he swears, is that it? And dwarves don't lie, is that what you think? Not to me, no more than you would. You great golden fool. He's lied to you a thousand times and so have I. If we had to feel for Cersei before, we really have to for Jaime here. This is a major moment where, against all odds, his innocence is finally broken. With all the horror he has seen, Jaime has never considered this possibility. He's always been in a unique position as the only Lannister who likes both his siblings. And he's always been so jaded with the rest of the world, he's kept them both on pedestals as something different. This sentence is going to stick with Jaime as he goes forward, especially when it's mixed with what he'll speak to Tyrion about later on. A lies and loss of trust Well, they are pretty bad when he considers Tyrion, but obviously the revelation of Cersei and her potential discretions is going to haunt him from here on out, and this is just the first step. Incidentally, what lies has Tyrion actually told him? Probably none so far that I can really think of, which invites even more irony that Tyrion will tell a major lie about him killing Joffrey in his upcoming chapter, whilst also telling a truth about Cersei. Jaime will accept the lie as instantly correct, but obsesses over whether the truth is actually true. I've lost a hand, a father, a son, a sister and a lover and soon enough I will lose a brother. And yet they keep telling me how Lannister won this war. After a few more shots at his manhood, and eventually fleeing, Jamie thinks this. Inst- Jaime thinks this line instead, and there's something very Rob about it, about winning all the battles, but not actually gaining anything. This is supposed to be Jamie regaining everything, especially his family. That's what he pushed on the King's Landing from Riverrun, and all through the Wilderness for. Yet the complete opposite has happened. And if we think it's close to Rob, it's even more so to Tyrion, as it perfectly reminds me of Tyrion thinking earlier on, it's high summer for House Lannister, but why am I so bloody cold? They're very comparable lines. After such harsh words, even if they will become fully potent later, we wouldn't have been surprised for Jamie to get in a grump and start being mean about everything, especially since Jamie is checking up on the seeds he set earlier by allowing Loras to do his own investigation into Brienne. Bringing Brienne onto the scene after those kind of words would seem like an easy recipe for some harsh insults and some classic wench calls from Jamie. What do we get instead once Loris leaves? Him telling Brienne she looks good in blue, and to himself, he compliments her eyes. It's quite the unexpected turnaround. He didn't even bother noting Cersei's eyes, only her body. Before we get too into Jamie and Brienne, we should take a second to note Jamie's teaching method was absolutely spot on with regards to Loris. He wanted to kill Brienne when he saw her arriving. Now, he's been allowed his own agency, he's been allowed to come to his own answers. The result is his acceptance that something other than Brienne killed Renly. And I have to wonder if he'll ever learn anything further about the shadow. Or have any eventual opportunity for vengeance, or at least the illusion of such. But back with Brienne, we see how much Jamie's vouching for her and her story on Renly really meant to her, even if she can't quite find the words, and Jamie is determined to brush them off anyway. It's very, very clear the relationship between them has changed, and it's, it's just nicer in its simplest term. Brienne tries to compliment his cloak, she's happy he said she had honour, he's about to trust her with an incredibly important quest. Truly, it's all coming together for them. As Jamie says when they discuss the trial by combat, these two now know each other well although the wench nickname does make an unwelcome return. We can't have it all, I guess. Both Jamie and Brienne put their trust into their respective interests of the Tyrion-Sansa marriage. Jamie is convinced Tyrion would never do such a thing as murdering Joffrey, despite all the evidence he's heard to the contrary, and is willing to bet on it. as we readers know, he's right, making his final interaction with Tyrion all the more tragic. On the reverse, Brienne is convinced Sansa would never ever resort to murder. This one is a bit more interesting, because Brienne has obviously never met Sansa, she's got no idea what she's capable of, or what she's been through. All she has is what she's heard from Catelyn, so it's pretty cool to see how dedicated Brienne is to believing the woman she was last sworn to. Of course, such blind trust is going to lead into some of her key themes of feast, especially her lack of such trust and how that all ends up with nimble dick crab. But then we move on to something entirely different with this quote. She picked up the treasure gingerly, curled her fingers around the leather grip, and slowly slid the sword free of its scabbard. Blood and black the ripple shone. A finger of reflected light ran red along the edge. Is this Valerian steel? I have never seen such colours. Nor I. There was a time that I would have given my right hand to wield a sword like that. Now it appears I have, so the blade is wasted on me. Take it. Before she could think to refuse, he went on. A sword so fine must bear a name. It would please me if you would call this one Oathkeeper. The beautiful other half of Tywin's prize is finally revealed, and Jamie even rounds off how it came to be, connecting all those clues we had earlier on. And note before we get too far, the specific mention of the colours, the red and black of Targaryen, on the sword of a Stark. Can you say Jon Snow? Yeah, I think we can. This is quite the beautiful moment on several levels. There's the dichotomy of ice having been split into two halves, with one going to our purest representation of evil in Joffrey, and the other going to our paradigm of all that is good in the world in Brienne. As Jamie mentioned, there's the added bonus of Brienne defending Sansa with her father's own blade. And that just adds a whole aura, a whole air of mystique to this thing. This isn't a mere job, this is now a truly noble quest that seems as if it was just meant to be. And for Brienne, it really is everything. We've spoken, and will speak again, of Brienne's search for something worthy, something that matters. She believes she had that in protecting Renly, even though we know better. But from then, she's had nothing. Now she has it, something that will serve her former master, that will make Catelyn truly happy. She is going to save an innocent child and rob evil people of one of their prizes. If you are drawing up a quest to make a knight worthy, you really can't ask for much more. Brienne has wanted something like this her entire life, and though rereaders readers know it's going to lead to incredible hardships and a lot of frustration, you have to feel happy for Brienne in this moment. She deserves the sword, she deserves the quest. And she deserves that feeling of doing true good in the world, and the sword is a key part of that. Jamie confirms that Drew did want a sword of this nature his whole life. Let's not think that Brienne didn't also. And then there's the name. Clearly, sword naming is not an inherited trait because where Joffrey sucked, Jamie absolutely knocks it out of the park. It's a triple threat. It applies well to Brienne, a woman who desperately wants to pay Lady Catlin back and stick to the oath she swore, so that's pretty dead on. It applies to Jamie, the man who is most famous for not sticking to an oath, or at least one particular oath making a choice again and pick on the noble option over his family. And finally, here's an ode to Eddard Stark, from whence the sword came. The Stark family, throughout history, are the world's best Oath Keepers, especially if you've heard me talk of their social contract with the people of the North and Winterfell as a safe haven against the cold, and perhaps in some fashion against the others too. But even on a specific level, Eddard Stark lived a life of pain because he stuck to one promise, or one oath, to his baby sister. That act was the setup for this entire series, so I think this is probably the most apt naming of a sword we ever see. As before, when Jamie imprisoned Brienne, he gets annoyed at the assumptions that she makes in a snap judgment. He's been putting up with that his whole life, even when he's trying to do the right thing. And this is probably the rightest thing he's ever tried to do, maybe excluding Ares. So Brienne's interruptions and initial beliefs understandably rub in the wrong way, which all ends with his annoyance essentially pushing Brienne out of the door before he changes his mind about the whole thing. But as she leaves, we get this. I've made kings and unmade them. Sansa Stark is my last chance for honour, Jamie smiled thinly. So much of this plays into the major life choices Jamie is making in this section of the book. He doesn't want quick gratification with Cersei anymore. He doesn't want to dance to Tywin's tune. He wants to be good, and there's only so much opportunity for that in his situation. Sansa presents such an opportunity. There's an element of debt-paying and of oath-keeping. Catelyn did free him, after all, and yet never got her end of the bargain. But I believe a large part of this is also Jamie wanting to do the right thing, the good thing, he knows there's a lot of red in his ledger to borrow from the Avengers and Black Widow there and he wants to start paying it back. This is the new him. And that idea bleeds brilliantly into the ending of the chapter and the arc as Jamie sits down and records what's happened to him over these past three books. Critically, he is completely upfront about it all. There's no front, there's no worrying about reputation or honour. He basically owns up to it. I like to think this is his version of a confession about how the mighty Kingslayer, the golden boy of the West and that former star athlete has actually been doing of late and crucially, he also gives Brienne full credit, finally, for bringing him back. Sir Gerald Hightower had begun his history, and Sir Barristan Selmy had continued it, but the rest Jamie Lannister would need to write for himself. He could write whatever he chose, henceforth, whatever he chose. As chapter and arc ends go, they don't get more cathartic than this. The exercise of writing in the White Book and seeing there's still space remaining is a clear nod to Jamie essentially drawing a line under his former life and seeing that there is a chance to be better, a chance to be who he wants to be. It's an incredibly freeing thought. He's away from his family for really the first time. Yes, he spent half a year or more away from them physically, but now he's begun to remove himself from them emotionally too. It's a huge, huge, huge step for him, and a clear investment in this new Jamie that we've seen since his return to the city. So much of it is tied to Brienne and her efforts, but we want to give credit where it's due, because as Jamie says, it is his choice what he wants to be remembered for now, what deeds will be attributed to his name. He's made a good start with the giving of Oathkeeper and Brienne's quest, but what could be next on the agenda? Hmm... What could he do that would make him feel like he's doing the right thing, I wonder? Hmm. And therein lies the tragedy. This chapter is a far more lovely arc ending than we could have ever hoped for Jamie while reading through this book, but it's not his end for the book itself. He makes a definitive choice on what the right thing is and acts on it in a few chapters' a time. It just so happens to be another choice that goes directly against Cersei and Tywin's wants. But when it comes, as we'll discuss in great detail next week, his interaction with Tyrion ends up being what hurts him the most. Tyrion has been the lone bright spark of family life, that source of love that he could rely on even more so than Cersei. Yet the roles flip in Tyrion's final chapter and does great damage to Jamie's progress on becoming a better person. I'm glad to say, because of Jamie's inner strength, it does not derail completely. While we still do have that Jamie moment to come, this is the end of our looking at Storm Jamie chapters and what a ride it's been. In contrast to the big three of Daenerys, Jon and Tyrion, this is a goodbye that won't last you long as we'll be seeing plenty of Jamie in Feast. But I do feel, this Jamie arc is one of the top defining features of this book. Sam is great as a new POV, but nowhere near the level of Jamie, and just the act of including Jamie as a POV at all before getting the masterful deepening and laying of his character is one of George's many highs from this series. I don't think anyone could have predicted something of this nature before reading Storm, and the many themes we have seen in Jamie's arc of choosing oaths, the loss of one's defining feature, yet another different look at knighthood, as well as all of his redemptive qualities or whatever you'd like to call him, and his relationship with Brienne, all of it is some of the very best work. And that's without getting into his key role as a person in modern Westerosi history and all the inside looks we go into that stuff. It's a fantastic arc and one will get to see continued in Feast, or almost mirrored in a way as Jamie is forced to retrade its old steps to Harrenhal and River Run and other key places of his journey so far as a very different man. That revisiting is a key tactic for showing off how Jamie's changed, and we'll get to see him dance the line between keeping oaths and also doing his duty. I'm very much looking forward to those chapters indeed, especially his eventual ending which might be my most anticipated cliffhanger of them all. So we wave a semi-goodbye to Jamie. It's the end of his arc, but we will see him again. But for now, it's goodbye, Jamie, and hello, John, as we go into John 10, the first of our John chapters today. So in between the two goodbyes we have on today's episode, we now have someone with plenty more to give us just yet. And it's also worth noting that this is the most John we've ever got. This is his first 10th chapter, if you like. Which is kind of surprising when you think about it. Anyway, as I've mentioned multiple times, I'm firmly in love with John's late Stormark, Stormark, And after three chapters of essentially the same thing, the Night's Watch defending the wall, we finally reach a turn in the road and at least a conclusion to these constant battles. Well, I, I say turn. It's a bit more dramatic than that. Remember last week when we compared these attempts at the wall to a constant struggling arm wrestle? Well, someone is about to come along and flip the whole table, as the fate of the Wall, the Wildlings, and the North is changed forever with a fourth, final battle at the Wall, one to end all that came before. Even if I personally prefer all the cool walled warfare tactics we got as opposed to the ground-based one, but still. But that's all to come at the end. Before that, we have Jon essentially tying his own arc off if we want to look at his arc as his great Wildling journey. That's all getting wrapped up today. Jon's two remaining chapters, and his part in Sam's chapters, almost serve as an epilogue or perhaps a prologue to the next part of his life. First comes the conclusion of everything Wildling as Jon returns to from whence he came at the beginning of this book, Mance's Camp. Like Daenerys last week, we begin Jon's chapter with Jon up high. That's not so much of a surprise as it is for Daenerys, but we still immediately know we're missing some details. Last time we saw him, he was being hauled off to an ice cell, so what's happened since then to free him? I think this thought is so dominating that it's easy to miss the details, especially if you're a first-time reader. His first quote, Across the killing ground, he could see the glimmer of a thousand campfires burning, but their light seemed small and powerless against such gloom and cold. So it could be easy to skim over that, but to look at it gives the most critical detail. John is on the wrong side of the wall. What's going on here? How long has there been a winch cage then? and just what is John doing in it? As far as getting readers immediately invested in reading onward, George nails it with this chapter opener. We're not given any immediate answers, only that this is a bad situation, as we could probably have guessed as John starts thinking of death and gloom, and legacy as well. And when this day's work is done, my name will be shadowed forever. Rob had become a hero king. If John was remembered at all, it would be as a turncloak, an oathbreaker, and a murderer. So, some good old chapter sequencing from George again here. We've just rounded out Jamie's arc with him literally sitting in front of a book that details his legacy and memory, while a little while ago we had Tyrion thinking a very similar line about how he would be remembered if he went up on the wall. Legacy, and a sense of things ending, makes complete sense for how late this is in the book now, but let's not pretend this hasn't been a pretty consistent thought in John's head throughout. He's been filled with thoughts of being painted as a turncloak or a deserter ever since he started following Corin Halfhand's orders. The only difference was that he was thinking on how people would treat him in life, whereas his focus now is on memory. But he's pretty sure he doesn't have much life left, to be honest. And again, we as readers are left wondering why. What, what is going on here? And after the quickest of memories about Egret, another key part of the wildling review feeling of this chapter, we find out exactly what John's doing with a bit of a mic drop. The habit had become part of him, and he would need his fingers to be limber to have even half a chance of murdering Mance Rayder. Ooh, ooh. Wait, what What are we doing here? How have we gone from being thrown in an ice cell to confronting Mance in person with the idea of maybe murdering him? It's been John versus Mance for a while on the wall, but they haven't actually met up since John 2, and John's first chapter of this book pretty much entirely focused on John going to Mance's tent and meeting him for the first time, so again we can see the roundup and the revisiting vibe we've got going. But yes, this is superb writing in terms of making the reader want to find out exactly what's happened and what's going to happen. And George finally consents. We find out John was held in an ice cell for four days, and while the low temperature is incredibly dangerous, the fact that it's only five feet by five feet seems like the much worse feature. Four days of not being able to stretch or stand, that sounds horrible indeed. And I know John's not the tallest guy, I'm 6'2", so maybe the idea of the five feet thing is getting to me a little bit more, but I don't think it's comfortable for anyone. And incidentally, I wonder if this is where they'll stuff John Snow's body for a while after his stamming. It'd definitely be interesting to see Melisandre do her fire magic in a room made of ice, but we'll talk more about her later. And speaking of horrible, we have to listen to Janos Slint talk again, so who's the real victim? It turns out Maester Eamon can save the day with a quill and parchment in the same way Tywin Lannister can destroy House Stark. But big props to Eamon again for his defence of Jon. As stupid as Janos and Alyssa are, I'm glad to see the awe of tradition and respect that Eamon commands it means not even those two are foolish enough to challenge the old maester. I've got a feeling that would not go well for them. Unfortunately, Eamon's defence only leads to Fawn and Slint getting more creative with their punishment. Mance wants to parlay with us. He knows he has no chance now that Janos Slint has come, so he wants to talk, this king beyond the wall. And I have to include this, just because I can't read it without laughing out loud. Where does Janos Slint come up with this stuff? Yes, we know it's all bluster and overcompensation, and essentially an act, but there must be some small shred of something to give him this kind of overconfidence? I don't know, I don't know where he's getting it from. Either way, it's hilarious to me every time I see it. Still, it's interesting that Mance chooses now to ask for parlay. For what reason? He's come damn close to getting through the wall twice now, so what's stopping him going for the third? Yes, it takes time to build another turtle and gather everyone, etc., but why not take said time? You are the one with access to food and building materials, you're the ones that can sleep, and you're also the ones knowing that your enemy lacks all those advantages. The Night's Watch asking for parlay? That would make sense. Mance, not so much. Is it because he simply doesn't want any more Wildings to die, or is it because he can feel some cold winds at his back and he's starting to worry he is actually out of time? Considering the months it's taken down to get to the wall, well years really, I would have thought he would allow himself a little more time to get through. But we'll save the finding out for a few pages yet, yeah, we will get answers. When John is told he's been released from the cell for the sole purpose of being sent to Mance's camp, he laughs at how Janos and Thorn don't understand the Wildings at all. And while that's completely correct, he doesn't immediately realise they've got no interest in understanding them, that's not their thing. We get a lovely bit of John sass over the term Lord, but it also comes out that the slint Fawn duo aren't bothered about making terms with Mance and they just want to kill him. That isn't a big surprise that two men of their nature don't even consider the possible need for talking with a problem and immediately resolve that killing is always the best option. Slint declaring that he doesn't make terms with lawless savages gives a pretty strong indication he's got no idea how dire the situation actually is. But it's also pretty apparent that the real motive behind this ploy is to trap John. If he declines, he not only gets to die in an ice cell, but will have all but confirmed he is a wildling at heart. He must accept to publicly prove himself, as if he hasn't done that enough already. And if he does accept, well, as John discusses in a second, even with success, he is sure to die. Again, John later notes that he can't even switch sides, not that he would, because Mance and co. will know he betrayed them, a fact not lost on the Alice of Thorn. This is a death sentence, whatever way you look at it, and John is well aware. In all likelihood... They've got no fantasies about John actually being able to kill Mance and they're saying that just on the off chance he does and it sorts out a major problem for them. And John trying to actually kill Mance will lead to a more painful death either way instead of just trying to negotiate with him. They likely believe they can crush Mance and his army off their own wits whenever they like and they're going through with this show to keep Eamon and the Law of the Watch happy. Forn was the much more clever of the two, John realised. This had his stink all over it. He was trapped. I'll go, he said in a clipped, curt voice. By the by just to mention here. Being named as smarter than Janos Slynt is the same as being told you're more dynamic than Grandmaster Maester Pycelle. I wouldn't celebrate that too much for him. So we return to the cage, with John fully aware of his fate. As he so often has through this book, he refers back to the orders of Corin Halfhand. He's rode with the wildlings, he's climbed the wall with them, portrayed them for the watch. The only thing he's not really tried yet is actually killing Mance, so he may as well give it a go. He'll end his life still following orders, still trying to gain something for the memory of Corin and Geor and Donald Noy. He'll do it to give Eamon and Pip and Gren and all the brothers who followed him their best chance, even if it does leave Slint and Fawn snickering behind his back. Maybe he didn't choose this, but he can choose to view it as the act of a leader, as the man Donald Noy left in charge of the wall. If the blacksmith can die defending his brothers, so can Jon Snow. That idea is even more prominent when Jon has to cross the carnage he was forced to create. And there's no sense of victory in the field of death, there's no joy in it. I particularly think the use of a giant's corpse is meant to get across the sadness and pointlessness of all the fighting. A race is close to extinction and only being hurried along by all of this. And it relates so strongly to John seeing them for the first time in his first chapter, as well as the song of the giants we heard so early. The whole thing likely makes him think of Egret too, so John hurries forward to the first of his wildling reunions. And guess who it is? It's Torment, our favourite. And it's tough not to like him. The journey he and John share back to the wildling camp is full of him giving respect to the watch for how they fall and sharing drinks over those who have fallen and the inevitable talk on Egret's death. Painful though it is, it's also incredibly important for Jon to have the opportunity to drink and toast her life and pay homage to her passing. Clearly, he can't do that with his sworn brothers, no more than he can lament Mag the Mighty or hope that Lonspear Reich is happy somewhere. As fiercely as he's fought against them in the last few chapters, this is a rediscovery of what Jon found earlier. There are people he likes among the wildlings, there are good people, and this as much as anything is important for his later decisions as Lord Commander. It would be one thing to feel these feelings for the first time when he's under orders etc., and then just get back to the wall and discount all of that as him playing a part. But he has been back now, he's returned to the Night's Watch, yet still feels this way about Tormund and Long Longspear and the others, so it must be real. These people must be as real as he thought. The sharing of drink and stories is also very important for John and his relationship with Tormund going forward. No, it's, it's not quite guessed right, but it is a gesture of friendship and respect at the least. The Wildlings' honour strength and conviction, as evidenced by Tormund's story about his daughter, and John has shown that in abundance. It might still mean they have to come to blows, but to Tormund, at least, he respects John for what he's done. That's critical going forward, and it's critical for John to view his own acts that way too. Such realizations will have to wait for later though. At the moment, John is understandably focused on not just the fact that he's incredibly likely to die very, very soon, but he's lying to these people again. He's being underhanded and dishonourable, and Tormund being nice and drinking with him only highlights that. If John thought it would work, he'd just tell Tormund why he's there and be upfront, but that wouldn't give him a chance to get to Mance, and he has to consider the lives of his brothers instead of his own honour. Just like Corrin taught him. All men die, he could almost hear her say. And women too. And every beast that flies or swims or runs. It's not the when a dying that matters. It's the how of it, Jon Snow. Easy for you to say, he fought back. You died in battle, storming the castle of a foe. I'm going to die a turncloak and a killer. So we can kind of see the mindset that Jon's in. Once we get to the Wildling camp, re-readers will know to look for key details that are going to matter later on mainly the fact that this camp has even less defences than it did on the march there's no organisation or barriers or anything the majority are just women and children walking around everywhere and kind of haphazardly why bother being organised you know where the enemy is they're on top of that bloody big wall and what also stands out is the sheer number of them Torman said only 200 had died in the battles so minus however many stir had and those of the weeper or anyone else making fates along the wall we've still got the majority of a hundred thousand people just waiting here near defenceless and again we'll come back to that all later for now, we've got more reunions. You must be very brave or very stupid, Jon Snow, Mance Raider said. Come back to us wearing a black cloak. What else would a man of the Night's Watch wear? So props to Jon for being brave enough to be straightforward about it all. He's not beating around the bush, and he's also dropping a little insult to Mance. He's a man of the Night's Watch who chose a cloak of a different colour after all. But if Tormund is going to respect you for being you, perhaps Mance will as well. Mance's generals in Harma and Varamir are not so welcoming, and we can get some key info from Varamir that will return in his prologue. But the most important part is Mance confirming that he knows the true situation at Castle Black, thanks to the eagle, which begs the question yet again of why he wants to talk. Angry as his subordinates are, Mance shows himself to be a wise man, willing to use Jon for his purposes, no matter what cloak he wears. And miraculously, Jon is invited into the tent without Harma or Tormund or the others. He's already got far further than one would have guessed. Within the tent, we see Dalla and Val again, again setting some further storylines for Feast and Dance respectively, but Jon is too consumed by guilt to concentrate on them. Note that John sees Mance's sword and wonders if he can take him one-on-one. We won't find out until Dance, but re-readers know that would have ended really bad for John. so good job he didn't do that. Again, guest right isn't applicable here, but whichever way you look at it, John's mission is to kill a man inside his own home, one that he's just been invited into, presenting a friendly face before presenting a knife, all in front of two women and maybe a baby soon as well. Can there really be anything less honourable? It reminds me of the story I and the Hound heard from the Piper Man. And what is this if not reminding us about the Red Wedding and the nature of betrayal? Would Eddard Stark kill a man in this fashion? Of course not. But would Eddard Stark do everything he could to save the wall and do his duty? Yeah. It's all very, very confusing for Jon, and we can see it weighs heavy on him with this quote. Foul enough to slay a man in his own tent under truce. Must I murder him in front of his wife as their child is being born? Mance was not even wearing armour, but his own sword was sheathed on his left hip, and there were other weapons in the tent. Daggers and dirks, a bow and a quiver of arrows, a bronze-headed spear lying beside that big black horn... John sucked in his breath. A war horn. A bloody great warhorn. Who something else out of left field, they keep coming in this chapter. I do not think any of us expected that thing to turn up, but it's enough to make John forget all about his mission for a while. Egret said you never found the horn. Did you think only crows could lie? I liked you well enough for a bastard, but I never trusted you. A man needs to earn my trust. That seems pretty similar to Jamie hearing that Cersei and Tyrion liked him, but we don't know if Mance is being genuine here. First off, did he order Egret to lie about finding the horn or did he lie to Egret in the first place? I say it's the latter. I don't see him trusting her with such critical information if he actually wanted it kept from John. But the larger question is, is he being genuine about the horn in general? Is this thing real? Most re-readers would agree that it's not. That Sam unknowingly carries the true horn of Winter after it is dug up on the fist of the First Men. Because it seems like a likely part of the story that this great and powerful item would turn out to be the small cracked one instead of this grand, definitely looks-the-part thing being presented to John now. And while we're here, if you want to hear more about uh, horns and different theories and that, uh, Aziz went on to In Geek a while back now, it was a while back, but you can go and listen to that video. Uh, I haven't for a while now, I've probably forgotten most of it, but there's definitely a lot of horn talker there. So go and check that out for more, for more theories on where these things come from and who's got the right one and all that kind of stuff. But the truth we've got right now is we've got no idea. We don't know which horn is which, and perhaps Mance doesn't either. Both eventualities are possible. He might be showing the huge horn off to John as another Savas move to get the wall opened up and his people through by use of intimidation, because he knows John will be taken in by the look and the legend. Or he could generally believe it's a real thing and truly would have blown it in three days if he was forced to. That's what he's going to threaten in a minute. And he's going to threaten that Tormund blows it. Tormund's, one of Torman's nicknames is Hornblower, so that does make sense. Either way, John asked the correct question when pondering, why, if this thing is real, haven't you just blown it and finished the night's watch off completely? The joint response by Dalla and Mance might be my favourite part of the chapter. Let's talk with Dalla's famous phrasing here, one that is so important to her, she's bothering to say it in the middle of labour. <laughs> we free folk know things you needers have forgotten. Sometimes the short road is not the safest, Jon Snow. The Horn Lord once said that sorcery is a sword without a hilt. There is no safe way to grasp it. I feel like we've referenced this quote at least ten times already in this project, because it's so damn applicable to so many parts of the story. You can apply it to Mirri Mazda, to the dragons, to Melisandre and Stannis, to Bran... And before stories end we can likely add euron and john and maybe dragons again to that whole list it may even turn out to be incredibly relevant to the others origins and the overall message of the series there's a reason it's so famous but mance also backs it up with logistics as he confirms what we thought about his numbers and the true reason for him wanting to talk blood said Mance Vader. i'd win in the end yes but you'd bleed me and my people have bled enough i really like the paragraph of mance describing his full numbers and how many different options he actually has to get around the wall not even just get around it, he has the numbers to wipe out the Night's Watch if he wishes. Before we get to his motivations, it just goes to show how truly screwed Castle Black was before Stannis turned up. It frames all those early attacks as true child's play, mere feints that were maybe a fingernail compared to the Haymaker Mance could have landed if he wished. Jon and Donal and all the others were never ever going to win. And if we forget about Stannis for a minute, I think we know full well what would have happened if Jon Snow elected not to kill Mance and was sent back to the Wall. Firstly, he'd be hanged for obviously being a turncloak and not killing Mance, as stupid as that is for John returning to the wall. But Slint and Fawn would obviously listen to no threats about magic horns. So either Mance would blow the horn and bring down the wall, or much more likely, he goes full offensive and does all those things he says he can do, digging out gates or sailing round Eastwatch or whatever, and a bunch more people die on both sides, which is what Mance is trying to avoid. And you have to respect him for this passage. Obviously, he doesn't want any wildlings to die, but you get the sense he'd like to avoid killing crows if he can as well. Whether that's out with. Respect for life or because he knows they are going to be needed for the larger battle soon enough, you get the same result. He's not a madman obsessed with just one goal, he's not willing to throw everything away just for the glory of being the man who gets past the wall. He's doing this for a reason, to save people. He is acting exactly like a king should. He believes there is no point in saving them if he has to send a bunch of them to die in order to achieve that, not if he can afford it. This is a huge plus in his column in my book, and relates very strongly to the philosophical debates had by Stannis and Davos early on or, you know, any number of characters who have discussed what it is to be a king. He's just laid out, he has the numbers, he's got people to spare, but he doesn't see them as people to spare, that's the critical point. And this is it, this is the point of being a king. John even asks the question bluntly in a second, and Mance goes through all the ways he is definitely not a king, not by almost any measure of the word in modern Westeros, but by the true meaning of the word, the true cause of the idea of kingship existing in the first place. I think we can say Mance is one of the truest kings we ever see. I've never had a crown on my head or sat my ass on a bloody throne, if that's what you're asking, Mance replied. My birth is as low as a man's can get. No septon's ever smeared my head with oils. I don't own any castles, and my queen wears furs and amber, not silk and sapphires. I am my own champion, my own fool, my own harpist. You don't become king beyond the wall because your father was. The free folk won't follow a name, and they don't care which brother was born first. I'll admit here, when I first started reading the series, I always thought the War of the Five Kings included Mance and excluded Renly or Balon, and obviously I was corrected on that pretty sharpish. but reading this speech here, I don't think I was as wrong as I thought I was. Mance is more a king than most. The other part of this we've not discussed yet is Mance bringing up the others again, and how he is just a man running away instead of coming for glory like we discussed a minute ago. If I sound the Horn of Winter, the wall will fall, or so the songs would have me believe. There are those among my people who want nothing more. But once the wall is fallen, Dalla said, what will stop the others? This has me thinking that maybe Mance does believe his own propaganda and thinks he actually owns the Horn of Winter. But whether he does or doesn't, his rush to get away from the others is obvious. So it turns out both our early assumptions about his motivations to talk were true. Even more key, he does not want to beggar the realm to save his own people. He does not want to leave the world defenseless. They will if he's forced to, because it's that or die. And it's better to take a chance on the other side than do nothing. So Mance makes his offer. Let them through and the watch gets the horn. We all go on living, no hard feelings. The unlikelihood of that ever being accepted, we can breeze past, because John identifies a far more important point when he asks Manse to accept the laws of the Seven Kingdoms if he wants to go live there. When we want laws, we'll make our own. You can keep your king's justice too and your king's taxes. I'm offering you the horn, not our freedom. We will not kneel to you. This is huge, huge, huge in terms of policy and negotiations and the future of John's interactions with the wildlings, as well as telling us yet more about Manse the Man and the wildlings themselves. He wants to save lives, he wants to keep the wall standing to protect life in general, but he'll give both of those up in a heartbeat if it means sacrificing the core element of what it is to be a wildling. To them, such a fate as giving up their freedom is worse than death. Mans has spent a life breaking away from that idea, he will not subject his people back to such, even if it means going to battle instead. Is this short-sighted or proud, considering the situation? Maybe, but it again makes you respect him. He is dedicated to the party line, he is dedicated to the soul of his people. And like we say, He's really got the Knight's watch over a barrel, whatever they choose. We get such a great insight into Mance and the advance of the things here. This almost makes it a shame that what happens next does. This has all made John forget his original mission. But he remembers it here, only to be scuppered by another surprise. A thousand thoughts flickered through John's head. If I can destroy the horn, smash it here and now. But before he could begin to think that through, he heard the low moan of some other horn, made faint by the tent's hide walls. Mance heard it too. As if the tension hadn't been high enough in that conversation with Mance, Now we get the addition of a surprise enemy, one we've got no idea about, and the Wildlings all think it's others or the Whites, so our tension soars even higher, because that would make a lot of sense narratively given how we had the fist early on, and we've just been discussing how they might get away from the others, so that wouldn't have been that big of a surprise. We know from the other war battles that George can elicit tension with the unknown enemy, but at the moment we're just 100% confusion. And so is the Wildling camp, we see those weaknesses we discussed earlier come to prove true as chariots go rolling off the wrong way, some think they're assaulting the wall, and mostly just wandering about not knowing what they're doing. John is none the wiser about what's going on either, and then the attack comes, one long organized line of riders against a ragged charge of screamers. Even when Mance rides off with that feigned wing helm, with some form of structure, it all breaks apart immediately. Everything is set for the catastrophic defeat that's coming. And John takes note of Mance's cloak a lot at the end, and this is a callback to John asking what cloak a man of the night's watch would wear. With Mance gone it really looks like Varamir intends to kill John and explain stuff later. But just as he goes to do that, we get even more confusion. Then the skin changer threw his head back and screamed. The sound was shocking, ear piercing, thick with agony. Vranmir fell, writhing, and the cat was screaming too. And high, high in the eastern sky, against the wall of cloud, John saw the eagle burning. That's right, everybody, the power of fire has arrived at the wall, even if we don't know how just yet. And let's say it how it is. This is a pretty cool new power from Mel, but that'll be discussed at a later date. The battle goes from bad to worse as the wildlings utterly shatter in truth, and we get the slight heartbreak of John thinking it might be Rob for a few moments. In fact, he guesses everyone but the true saviour, despite all the yellow, yellow and yellow. I hope Owen is feeling pretty smug right now. And PS, I bet all this looks super cool from above the wall. As the battle is won, we get a little cliffhanger on whether Matt survives, but we also get a pretty magnificent answer for what's going on. Robert, John fought for one mad moment, remembering poor Owen. But when the trumpets blew again and the knights charged, the name they cried was Stannis, Stannis, Stannis! John turned away and went inside the tent. Being present for the birth of a child where the mother does not live. Can't get more nerdy than that, John. And I just like the idea of John standing guard with Val and Dana and the baby during all of this. And also, slight kind of repeat from Daenerys' chapter in uh, in Game of Thrones where Jorah takes her back inside the tent. Obviously, there's heaps and heaps to discuss about Stannis' arrival, but we'll have time for that later in John's next chapter. This particular one is running long. So for now, we must mourn the dream of Mance's that could have been. He wanted to keep his people from breaking. And now look at them. John basically gets away with some incredible luck but this is also a huge changing point in his life too. Okay considering how long those first two chapters are I'm going to put the halfway point here today and uh, two shout outs to go and well I did promise you didn't I that I would reveal who the special guest is for the next part of Sporkle Spectacular for Clash of Kings closing sentences. So get your drum out already and I can tell you now our special guests guests yeah plural this week are Nate and Zach of the Brotherhood Without Manners podcast the greatest name podcast ever yes very very lucky to have the guys they were kind enough because they're talking to me all the way from California they were kind enough to stay up late chat to me this past weekend we were finally able to get it done after stupid laptops messing up and uh, me having to delay on them several times but we got it done and like i said earlier it's great fun great laugh very lucky to have the guys over they're busy 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 they put out two episodes a week i'm sure you're giving them a follow already but if not do check them out there's another fresh take on the whole reread project type thing and they're just a bunch of good pals are really cool to follow on twitter both of them and well, I mean, I talk about this enough in the uh, in the podcast, but, but you won't regret giving them a follow. I just thankfully, I'll say thank you again to you guys for coming on. And uh, I'm not going to reveal your scores just yet, but they did go head to head. We had a close run battle and yeah, a lot of fun, a lot of laughs. So look forward to that episode later in the week with Nate and Zach of Brotherhood Without Manners. And second shout out today, we're going quick here. I don't think this uh, this shout actually needs me to do any shouting out or advertising for it, but I'm going to do it anyway, because I love them. So as you probably already know, Radio restaurants have announced they're doing live streams every Saturday now, every weekend. And not only is that mind-blowing enough, because this is Radio Resteros, and we love Radio Resteros content. They are the core part of this fandom, the core content creators. I really I really can't talk them up enough. You, you know, you know, you don't need me to talk about them. So not only are they doing live streams, but they're doing live streams about the winds of winter. Primers they're calling, and they're talking about what's going to go on, what's going to happen, what can we expect. So that, if there's anything that can get your juices flowing... I think that might be it these two of our favorite people lady gwen and the oak boy talking about the winds of winter and not only that not as if that's enough for us not enough of a gift they're having special guests on and the first episode came out this past saturday they come at 5 eastern which i think is 10 for uk people and they call them the streams of winter which is cool enough name And on this first episode, who should they have as their guest? Aziz, History of Westeros. This is the moulding of the true great strengths of our fandom. How can you ask for any more? So I haven't had a chance to catch it yet, but then when I've got it queued and ready, I'm pretty comfortable with endorsing and giving a shout out on on Faith alone. I'm sure it was good. And I'm definitely looking forward to listening to that. Believe me, I'm going to listen to it on my dog walk after I record this very podcast. So if you're somehow not aware of this, go and check it out because... Like I said, could you ask for anything more? This is the content we need. This is what we want. Couldn't ask for more. from two of our favourites, so Lady Gwen, Yoke Boy. Looking forward to the rest. I'm sure you're going to have more brilliant guests on, and uh, we'll all be tuning in. Definitely, definitely, definitely. Please share and like, and go and watch that. Because, whew, what, a, what a stream, what a, uh, what a reveal, what a present they've given to us. Very, very timely. I, I think that will do. I think I'll do for halfway showers. I don't think you need to know any from me about Radio Estos and uh, and those guys. I think you probably already know. But anyway. Brotherhood Without Manners, Radio as Aziz getting involved. I love shouting people out. It's just good to uh, to share the love. We've got so much going on in the fandom here. But we've also got a lot still to go in this chunk of chapters here. So we should probably get back to it. Because this is an important chapter coming up here. Now for our third one of the day in Aya 13. Let's put on our goodbye hats again. Because it's time for another final chapter and the closing one arc. And this one is a much neater tie-off than Jamie's. Not only that... This is really a conclusion of two books worth of arc instead of one, as Arya's time in the Riverlands comes to a close, with her meeting some of her original antagonists. She also has the removal of the man who killed her friend in these parts back in Game of Thrones, and she recovers a key element of herself that was lost back in Clash, before saying goodbye to that which she has known for so long, Westeros itself. Given that she has the most chapters in this book, it can be argued that Arya is the main character of the Storm of Swords, although we should note that Jon is only one chapter behind in his total. Personally, i have forgotten we get quite so many chapters of Aya going around with the Brotherhood, so that might dilute her total slightly, but the argument of a main character is an interesting one. Trying to definitively decide on a main character in such a series is redundant, but if you had asked me before we started the reread read which arc was my favourite in Storm, I may well have said Aya. Certainly she'd be top 3, and that is still very much true here at the conclusion. It's difficult, given that this is a more of a two-book arc like I say, but Aya's time among the smallfolk and their resistance against this crushing game of the nobles remains such a strong and important thread of these parts of this whole series. Not only that, but given that Catelyn is absent for the second half of the book, and Sansa and Tyrion take such back seats in the first half, Arya is really the prominent POV for central Westeros alongside Jaime. True, I have to champion Jon and Daenerys as perhaps the best arcs of Storm, but Arya still belongs on the podium. Our viewing of the Brotherhood, her gradual loss of the pack and Gendry and Hot Pie, the devastation of the Red Wedding and being oh so near to getting back to her family, offset by the recovery of Catelyn's body, is all summed up here brilliantly as she gains the first of her avengers before being so truly broken by all that she has seen, she abandons the region altogether. I think this chapter in a vacuum is a more definitive close than most and one of the best chapters of all. Aya is literally visiting a place she has been before when she was a completely different person, she is visiting an inn where much of her family's fate was decided. And don't forget what we spoke of before about Sansa and Aya constantly following Catelyn's physical footsteps. But the most prominent parts of the chapter are Aya's violence coming out in full force as a vengeance comes true. The entire frustration and hurt of both this book and Clash of Kings all comes out at once and we are forced to question our views on vengeance and the coolness of it all once again. Because yes this is Aya and Sandor gaining revenge and killing evil men who we know full well are truly evil, that's the kind of thing that's cool and looks great especially if you show it on a popular tv show but at the same time here in the books it's still a girl not yet 10 years old covered in blood and gore and delighting in murder and death not delighting that's not quite the word but she's into it it's dark it's harrowing and it's difficult combine that with two types of death and mercy giving that we'll come to tackle in a moment all rolled up with Aya finally earning a kind of tentative freedom as she did at the end of Clash of Kings and it makes one of the very best single chapters for representing a character's whole arc. It's masterful stuff, and one of my favourites. And to slip this in here, it's actually quite similar to Tyrion's final chapter we've got coming up with, in terms of revenge killings and then leaving Westeros. Just bear that in mind as we go. This chapter is also incredibly fast-paced, especially considering the structure of recent chapters. There's no thinking back on recent events, there's no real explaining of how they got where they are. There's actually no setup at all. Right from the off, we are entering an inn, we're straight into Sander's conversation with Polliver and Pals, it's only two or three pages before we're fighting it's a very different style to what we've been used to of late and i think that's an intention to go along with how iris thinking she's still shell-shocked that's hard to say she's still feeling empty there's no time for extra thinking and reflection i just seeing facts of the bare bones and that's been true of her character and pov the whole time and it also ties into her, her age a bit but it really stands out here if we're going to compare different writing styles for different povs i think george really wanted to make this a punch of a chapter and his writing style complements that it's our first quote of the chapter Outside the inn, on a weathered gibbet, a woman's bones were twisting and rattling at every gust of wind. What an amazing line in terms of telling us where we are and showing the passage of time, and just making that roundabout link not only to Aya's past, but that of her mother's, and the change in the general state of the realm. Back in the day, this inn was a vibrant, busy, important place where locals and small folk could come for drink and safety. We saw the first ruin of that in Tyrion's Game of Thrones chapter, where the nobles bought their war, killed Masha Heddle, and obviously ended its time as a happy place. Now we see that since then, there's been no restoration, no return to the status quo. Yes, it is serving as an inn again, but it's no longer a safe place. It's sparsely populated compared to what we saw before, and it's at the mercy of ro- roving bands of soldiers who are really no better than outlaws. There's a comment on what has happened to the Riverlands as a whole. The nobles brought their arguments when Catelyn arrested Tyrion. The nobles bought their war when Tywin used it as a camp. And the nobles have done nothing for it since. It's just been left in a void to look after itself in the aftermath of war. That's why I like Aya's appearance here. She's a member of the nobility, paying back that huge debt to the small folk in some small way by killing some of these roving soldiers that have done so much damage. It's a drop in the ocean, to be sure. But given that Aya has been our window to so much suffering of the small folk and at the hands of these specific soldiers, it is incredibly fitting for her to be the one to strike back for the small folk. I think that sets up a lot of the themes that Brienne will pick up in Feast. But like I say, we've got no build-up. We're already walking into the inn and it seems Sandor is basically tired of sneaking around and being careful, likely because alcoholism is really getting to him. We're quick to talk about Tyrion and Cersei's love of the drink, fairly, but we don't mention it as much about Sandor, even though it's quite clear he has a similar vice. Yet at the same time, he's got his overall larger picture head on straight, because he's seeking out specific information about what will affect their next move. This is a couple of pages away yet, but Sandor's pretty straightforward and smart about doing some recon about who holds Hall, which they are very near to. The location of Gregor, the situation on Riverrun, and when it seems that the Blackfish is on the way out, the situation at the salt pans, as we'll learn later, he's planning another route to the Eyrie. That's some pretty quick thinking right there. I also wonder what Sandor might have done if Gregor was still at Hall and hadn't been summoned to King's Landing. Would the Hound have charged blindly ahead and tried to slip through to his brother, or would he have still waited and bided his time for a one-on-one opportunity? He's been waiting patiently his whole life, despite having plenty of opportunity, so you'd think he'd be fine with waiting, but he's also become much more frustrated of late, so maybe he would just go for it. And again, jumping ahead a bit, But due to the nature of timing, Sandor learns all this but doesn't learn about Gregor's actual fate, so it's a real shame that he dies without knowing about that. But then again, would it give him pleasure or pain to know his brother is dying by someone else's hand? I wonder if the elder brother informs him about it later. But let's get back to them actually entering the inn. Aya has the faintest thought of escaping, but I think it's clear now she was never going to take that opportunity anymore, and Sandor probably knew it. We think the tension is raised by the possibility of seeing Sandor in action when he loosens his sword, but it's more than trumped by the moment Aya walks in. They know him. The silence told her that. But that wasn't the worst thing. She knew them too. Not the skinny innkeep, nor the women, nor the field hands by the half, but the others, the soldiers. She knew the soldiers. So now we know something's going to go down, and the tension in the room just skyrocketed. You don't reintroduce characters this evil after this long without something coming of it. So now we as readers get to play the tiptoe game, and waiting for it all to kick off. And Aya goes along with that, by sizing up what danger they could pose. And I really like her showing off she's got that kind of hackles up mindset constantly now. Poliver gave her a fleeting glance, and the boy beside him never looked at her at all. The third one gazed long and hard. He was a man of middling height and build, with a face so ordinary it was hard to say how old he was. The Tickler. The Tickler and Poliver both. It's a good reminder of how terrifying the Tickler was or is for Aya, far more so than Polliver, and gets our minds working to recall all the horrible little details from Clash of Kings. As if that wasn't cause of attention enough, we have the third enemy speaking up, the only one that Aya doesn't know, and he's daring to call out the hound despite him just being a spotty-nosed teen the fact that Tickler, of all people, is giving warning glances and basically telling no, we do not want any part of this, all serves to this great creation of anticipation. Let's talk a bit about Mr Pimple, as I'm going to call him, because he plays an important role in his short time on the stage, and it's a good comparison to the type of people now roaming over the Riverlands, picking on the leftovers. He's obviously a cocky little so-and-so, because probably all he knows is victory. Not even victory, but just walking around with people like Polliver and Tickler, being able to claim what they want. It's all gone to his head, along with the alcohol, to turn him into this arrogant whelp who believes he can do as he wishes. It's not a surprise people like this turn into new Pollyvers, which makes his ending critical also because yes, it's another example of a young person being killed and that does bring up conflicts, but he also very clearly deserves it. At least Poliver and the Tickler have the sense to know they really do not want to rile up the famous hound, no matter what the recent stories are, and the tension level keeps rising, only aided by everyone clearing out so that the two main parties are left. And how many times have you seen that before in a big fight in a film? A saloon showdown is what we're heading for. But before we get that we have Pollyver being the one to do the talking, and note how quickly Arya skips over the description needle without highlighting it at all. Perhaps because he wants Sandor to relax or drink more so their eventual attack is even more of a surprise. Either way he gets some pretty key info over to Arya and the Hound. Joffrey's dead. She knew it ought to make her happy, but somehow she still felt empty inside. Joffrey was dead. But if Rob was dead too, what did it matter? It's so important this thought comes from Arya specifically, the girl for whom vengeance might be her core theme, Even here, with the result of her most hated foe's death, she can't gain any pleasure for it. Now is that because she didn't get to do the killing herself, or because it doesn't bring Rob or her parents back? It's seemingly frustrating that Aya feels and notes this, but isn't able to apply it to the real world, or see the larger message that vengeance will not bring her happiness. But then again, I feel as if a large part of Aya seeking revenge isn't for her own gratification, but because it is right, because it is just. And justice being so heavily tied into Ned, I I just think that that filters down to Aya a bit. Either way, we'll see in a moment how Arya can have these poignant thoughts, but that doesn't equal to the pure emotion in her soul, her need for revenge. And it is also fitting she learns of Joffrey's death kind of right next door to when these two first came to blows with each other in Game of Thrones. That was near Castle Darry, and we're not a thousand miles away here. The learning doesn't stop there, as Arya finds out about Sansa marrying Tyrion. She's a lot like Jon in terms of getting this information way later than everyone else. And that first wedding seems like an age ago to us readers, especially given we've had three since then. That's stupid, Aya thought. Sansa only knows songs, not spells, and she'd never marry the imp. The hound sat on the bench closest to the door. His mouth twitched, but only the burn side. It'd certainly make sense if Aya did believe in spells, she's already seen a bunch of magic with Beric, but much more interesting is Sandor's reaction to this news. He's hearing this all for the first time too. When he left King's Landing, no one would have guessed Sansa and Tyrion would get married, and given his, let's call it interest in Sansa, Perhaps this news isn't the most welcome, especially since he might not be the greatest Tyrion fan either, something I hadn't considered before, she ought to dip him in wildfire and cook him. Okay, so I wonder if Sandor resents slash blames Tyrion for setting the Blackwater on fire and Sandor's subsequent reaction, so maybe this doubles up as as bad news for him. But Sandor goes on with his fact-finding mission that we spoke about a minute ago, and at the same time, I gets confirmation she was absolutely right to risk it all and escape Harrenhal with Gendry and Hot Pie, or they would have ended up slaughtered by Gregor's men. The news of fake Aya comes up, and Sandor obviously laughs because he loves it up above screwing themselves over with their mistakes. But he probably shouldn't laugh considering how much more difficult that would make his job of ransoming Aya back. Remember, at the moment, the intention is to take another crack at reaching Riverrun and trying their luck with Brendan Blackfish. Rob's northern continent has been wiped out, so there's probably no one there who knows Aya by face, and if that's mixed with news from the north that Aya's actually returned home already, then no way Brendan is going to shout out to the Hound of all people. Then again, that's kind of a relevant point now that he's hearing about a siege, and the blackfish maybe not being an option for much longer. Hence why he immediately asks about salt pans instead. He's switching tactics, thinking back to the area again. But these guys have a different idea. Sir, would sooner you return to Harrenhal with us, Sandor? I bet he would. Or King's Landing. Bugger that. Bugger him. Bugger you. Speaking of ransoming, the ticker is pretty openly suggesting they do that with Sandor, and now the tension explodes into physical confrontation. Sandor's warrior instincts are on point. He easily recognises that the Tickler trying to hide his knife throwing. He gets in a pretty cool opening line as well, but while Aya is busy downing arrogant squires with arrogant cut throws, she also recognises the Hound is drunk, too drunk this time. He's obviously got experience fighting while a bit boozy, but this is too much. His vice is going to come back and haunt him. Now, even someone as lowly as Poliver is going to test him. And also note that George refers to the fight as the Steel Song again, which is always one of his favourites. This time, it's Aya's turn to be the saviour, when she slows the Tickler down with another cut throw. Unfortunately, he still is close enough to slash at Sandal's neck, and before that, he stops our hearts. The look he gave her then was cold with promise. Is there gold hidden in the village? She could hear him ask. We remember what that will mean if Sandal dies and Iris is captured, which is incredibly concerning because it looks bad on that front. Sandal is outnumbered, he has worse equipment, he's already bleeding from two wounds. Iris tries again with flinging another knife, but it isn't until Mr Pimple grabs her that she starts making a difference. That kill comes easy, and it makes a lot of sense that she compares it to the stable boy in King's Landing, Another up jump that's happy to find someone beneath him. A bit like Peter Baelish in those preteen relationships we spoke of last week. Anyway, that allows us to even the odds and grab the tickler's knife. But what about Sandor? He's in trouble. Two fully grown and armed men are really giving him 100%. He's got more wounds, he's weary, he's still off his face. The great change in his life of living in the wild without constant food and all of that is caught up with him. He looks pretty done. And yet, even with all those factors and the fact he is fighting two men at once, Sandor again steps up to the plate. ''You think we won't?'' said Poliver. ''You're drunk.'' ''Might be,'' said the hound. ''But you're dead.'' His foot lashed out and caught the bench, driving it hard into Poliver's shins. Somehow the bearded man kept his feet, but the hound ducked under his wild slash and brought his own sword up in a vicious backhand cut. Blood splattered on the ceiling and walls, the blade caught in the middle of Poliver's face, and when the hound wrenched it loose, half his head came with it. ''Oof, that is... that's a pretty damn impressive kill. If Sandor had a little health bar here, it'd probably be flashing red.'' Yeah, he takes down a large, trained soldier whose health bar was green until a second ago. And he gets in another great line. George is likely trying to milk him for all he's worth before chapter's end. I definitely do not blame the tickler for backing away after seeing that. He's not wearing armour. He's nowhere near the soldier Pollyver is. Or well, was. And he's, just, and he's just seen what Sandor can do even while drunk. The tickler is a coward. He's not a real fighter. He just toys of the ones the real soldiers capture for him. He's a sadist. Even here we see him creeping on Sandor from the rear instead of striking dead on. So it's very fitting that while he's staring at the hound the true danger lies waiting just behind him is there gold hidden in the village she shouted as she drove the blade up for his back is there silver gems she stabbed twice more is there food where is lord Berwick? she was on top of him by then still stabbing where did he go how many men were with him how many knights? how many bowmen how many how many how many how many this is an extremely significant moment in the life of Aya. we've seen her kill before but it's been in the heat of the moment or without malice or to, to escape or whatever This one is pure emotion, pure rage, as everything that she's felt in this book and the last book as well, everything since the day her father died, comes out all at once. And again, at first glance, it's great. She takes down an evil torturer, a fact obviously on her mind as she repeats his own evil words back at him, and thereby avenges dozens she knew back at Harrenhal, and hundreds more she didn't know. But when we look closer, it's a little girl covered in another man's blood as she stabs again and again at a corpse. And now our souls feel a little heavier when we realise exactly what all this has done to poor Arya, How this has really messed her up. If Sandor again is the one dragging you off someone else, that really says something. But Death is not done with this in just yet. Mr Pimple still lives, but not for long. Sandor still has enough of his wits to strike out being called Sir, and I really noticed this time around that he's constantly calling Aya She-Wolf. I like to think of it as a term of respect. She's just gone up a tier in his estimation. I think it's a mark of respect or partnership, a twisted one I'll give you, when he makes Aya finish Mr Pimple herself. And the writing on this part, as well as being huge dramatically for Ire, is some absolutely stunning writing in terms of beauty. Hanging beside his dagger was a slimmer blade. Too long to be a dirk, too short to be a man's sword, but it felt just right in her hand. You remember where the heart is? The hound asked. She nodded. The squire rolled his eyes. Mercy. Needle slipped between his ribs and gave it to him. George refraining from using Needle's name until that last beat is... ah, It's brilliant. It is really, truly brilliant. And this really has everything, it's the tie back to the Piper Man, the use of the name Mercy, considering Arya's future, everything we spoke about before in terms of Arya maybe giving the gift of mercy to her mother, it's got it all. And I just love the, the dichotomy, the kind of, I don't know what you call it, reflection, of one kill being pure, uncontrollable rage, the kill of a wolf, in contrast to this cold, controlled execution, the kill of a Stark. This is a Ned kind of mercy justice giving. And of course, Aya's reunion with Needle, it feels right in her hand. Yes, I know we all love that. It is a perfect moment in terms of storytelling, absolutely perfect. And if we don't already have enough returns and recaps of arc, I and the Hound return to the Trident that they first crossed together after splitting from the Brotherhood. Remember that wild ride on the water horse? Well, the river looks back to normal. I even thinks of it as tired, and we get that sense of ending and closing off again. But in terms of Aya's time here, as well as some big five-year gap vibes, the partner-apprentice vibe, that keeps going as well as Sandor instructs Aya on how to try and help with his wounds. But I think there's a clearer word than partner or apprentice that we're dancing around here. Squire. We've made this comparison before, but it's clear here more than ever. Arya is the non-squire to Sandor's non-knight. Either way, it's pretty telling that Arya keeps on treating him after he passes out instead of killing him or running away, and as the day closes, we realise what a big day it is for Arya's list, the biggest day yet. Polivar, the Tickler, Joffrey all scratched off, and Arya soon realises she's left Sandor off too. By accident or subconscious design? Hmm. She feels wrong about it and says the hound, but it's a very complex emotion here, not nearly so keen as the show. Aya wants it to feel wrong that she left the hound off, but it doesn't as much as it should, and then that in turn feels wrong and guilty. It's confusing for Aya. She harbours some kind of odd respect or liking for Sandor, but she knows he's done bad, that he deserves punishment. And I like the fact that she says hound instead of his specific name, kind of like the verbal games the elder brother plays. I like to think she's wishing for the person who was to die instead of him specifically here and now. Though Aya's efforts were enough to get Sandor back on his feet, it isn't too long until he's falling off his horse with a sense of finality. After everything we've seen the big, strong hound, the one who laughs at emotional weakness, we see what the prospect of death does to him, or, you know, just intense pain. Not only does Aya see him sobbing, he's begging. He's trying to entice Aya to make a quick end of it. It's a humanising moment to see this weakness in him. It's one of the best connections we, as Norman people, can make with a behemoth like him. But it also leaves Aya in a moment of judgement. She must weigh his soul. Should she kill him now for all he has done, or should she leave him alive thanks to recent events? Do it. The gift of mercy. Avenge your little Michael. Micah, I stepped away from him. You don't deserve the gift of mercy. She comes with the third option. Sandor again will die for his crimes. At least, yeah, that's the idea. But it won't be by her hand. And all of that, she won't sully needle with his blood. Her gift is not killing him. Her curse is the refusal of mercy and a slow death full of pain. That is what he must pay for his crimes with, especially for Micah. And again, we're not very far from the sight of Micah's death, so it's all full circle here. It's a wonderful scene of reflections and everything working two ways. That applies to us readers too. Have we come to enjoy Sandor as an incredible character? Absolutely we have. We're likely very sad to see him go. But are we aware that he does need to pay for those past crimes? Arya has the strength to make the judgement, enact it and walk away. Maybe they'll smell you when the sun goes down. Then he would learn what wolves did to dogs. More amazing writings and this This chapter is just one of my favourites for strong writing. So this chapter has us saying goodbye not just to Arya for now but Sandor forever supposedly. Is a pretty major moment. Sandor has only grown in importance as the story has progressed and has turned out to be one of the best, most nuanced characters in the whole series. He's also one of the most diversive. He came from the enemy, he did such terrible things. In general, he's not very nice. But he protected Sansa, then came to do something semi-similar for Arya. He had us thinking on so many levels about the truths and bullshit of knighthood or court in general, how the society works overall. He's shown us amazing fighting and a lifelong quest for vengeance. He's shown us a whole bunch of pretty amazing stuff. But I personally don't think I would ever be able to do any credit here. And, you know, we'd need a whole other episode for that. I encourage you for the thoughts of uh, Sandor and his place and worth in the story to go and check out Chloe, Liza Arbor or Girls Gone Canon in general, because she is always on about Sandor and all this stuff. She's Mrs Sandor, which I think she would enjoy being called. And, yeah, I'm not, not going to do any anywhere near the type of good analysis she, she will do. So for Sandor Talk, go to her. But we still have a chapter to finish for Aya. Finally alone after all this time being dragged this way and that way, she manages to survive for six days in the wilderness on her own, which is pretty good, before finding salt pans. For re-readers, it's a pretty dark moment given that we know what's coming to this place, and in the hound's supposed name, no less. But the town Aya describes has a nice little beauty to it. She needs to get on with her own plan, and proceeds to get absolutely cheated out of her own horse. But also note how casually she thinks she could have just killed the woman if they were alone that's a little bit of a sign a little bit troubling but it does all lead her to the titan's daughter the ship i love the fact that i wants to go up to john snow but that just isn't on the cards unfortunately instead we get a realigning of directions and uh, i like this bit with the captain where she thinks the coin is smooth there's actually supposed to be a faceless man it's intentionally smooth i like that the captain saw pirate ships heading north and that's probably Sandor san but overall it's goodbye to aya that's what we have to focus on and this is a bit of a strange one if i'm honest because while, like Jamie, it's only a temporary goodbye and we are going to see her again in Feast, unlike Jamie, whose POV count is going up and higher and higher and he's going to be more and more involved, Aya is going on the downward trend. She only has five more POVs after this chapter. How strange is that to think? She gets three in Feast of Crows, two in the Dance for Dragons, and considering she has the most chapters here, I think she's second in Clash of Kings, we've had so much Aya that this is a, a real deviation in the series here. So it's, and it's not the best. It's not my favourite. I love Aya. I love Iron Clash and in Storm, so to not get much for after, it does rub me the wrong way, if I'm honest with you. And some of those chapters in Feast, they're also not my favourite. I did tweet that the other day. Not so popular with everyone, but yeah, I don't like the Cat and the Canals chapter. It's just a bit long for me. But, I mean, I can see the purpose, I know why, and this is obviously a very real casualty of the five-year gap. I just want more Iron. That's all I'm saying. And the Aya we're going to be treated to in those further five chapters. And again, I just can't get over that five chapters. We've already had 13. She's getting like a third of the chapters she's got in this one book. That's how far we've got to go over the next two books. And I'm just going to miss doing her chapters. I really am. And there is worth in those chapters. Like I say, there is real good parts and real highlights. And there's so much thematic stuff going on in there and her turn. And the eye we're going to see, she's very different. She is even more disconnected from the world. Obviously, she's disconnected from, the, from her place of birth and her home and she becomes disconnected from Arya Stark as an identity. Not that we've not had enough of that already, but it's even more so when she gets to the House of Black and White and all of that stuff. So we've got all that to come. So at least we do have some Arya still to come, even if I'm going to miss the frequency and the, the depth, because she is really one of the strongest parts of this book and Clash. And like I said at the top here, her being the main connection to small folk and how big of a part of the series that is, that relationship between nobility and small folk and what the nobility have done to these small folk. It's a major part to have Aya see the effects of that and have I through the eyes of an innocent child, well, obviously no longer innocent, through the eyes of a child see all that and see what this has done and pay back for it in some small way and really feel it and live it. It's, it's a bit different from Jamie as a adult and obviously even higher in the member of nobility Brienne is closer but not quite the same it's all different it's all specifically Aya and I think there's no better character to see the brotherhood and their uh, efforts especially given that they were acting on her father's original orders and all that stuff it's a really big piece of this puzzle that I'm going to miss but in terms of endings I can't ask for more than this chapter it's a beautiful beautiful chapter in terms of his writing and that all these thematic arts come in closing and Neagle's back and she gets her revenge and just all of it. Everything she decides of the Hound. Wow, what a chapter. And incidentally, I will say, if we're comparing to the show, the moment Aya gets on the ship and goes off to Bravos it's the ending scene of uh, Season 4. That's my favourite ever episode of the show, That ep- Episode 10 of Season 4. And that won't be one of my favourite scenes. The music there, Aya looking after the sunset. Amazing. Now, we don't get quite that same feeling of like, freedom and, and what could come here. But it, it is. Aya is getting away from this horrible sight of pain and all these things she's had to see through the Riverlands. So... Okay, does it get much better in Bravos? Yeah, it, it does, because she does gain some kind of role and uh, confidence about herself. But there's bad things to come as well. Of course, this is still George writing here. But still a, a huge moment and, and a beautiful moment. And uh, I don't know, I guess I'm just saluting Aya. And I'm hoping, Winds of Winter, that Aya POV count drifts back up. Yeah, definitely, definitely hoping that. Okay, I've waxed on about Iron enough. Let's get down to business. Let's go back north, because we still have two chapters to go. Let's get back to Sam 4. So, after our briefest of stops down in the Riverlands, we return to our primary setting of the day, Castle Black. And it's a very different Castle Black indeed, despite us only having one chapter since we were last there. Since being introduced to the Night's Watch back in Game of Thrones, we've only seen the numbers dwindle and the castle empty until we got to the point of Jon's return where it seemed half-abandoned. Now, all at once, the place is fuller than we've ever seen it. Swell to the brim with Stannis' men, captured wildlings, the hodgepodge garrison, And the final relief coming in from the Shadow Tower, along with some of our old friends, and add three onto that total in the form of Sam, Gilly and the baby. This is probably the fullest we ever see the place, but this is the Castle Black we'll have to get used to during dance as it's always going to be pretty busy from here on out, and it's such a stark contrast to the place we've got to know over the final part of this book. It is very different from all we've known so far. There's more people, there's suddenly more than just one faction, and the hint of politics we had last week with the arrival of Janos Slint and Alas of Thorn has suddenly exploded into a complicated web of defeated wildlings, a saviour king and his wants, and the future of the Night's Watch in the bid for a new Lord Commander. Indeed, this is one of the most intimate looks we ever get at the foundational structure of the Night's Watch as an institution, so it'll be pretty damn interesting. The main message for actual character analysis is that Samuel Tarly, the little engine that could, has made it home. This isn't quite his last chapter yet, but it is a major milestone on his life journey that frankly no one thought he would make. We were introduced to Sam as a POV in the very worst circumstances, a walking dead man on a doomed march as he remembers the most horrifying and disturbing battle humanity has faced in thousands upon thousands of years. It honestly doesn't get any darker than that. And if I had told you, about two pages into Sam 1, that he's only going to get one chapter in this book, you would have believed me. It absolutely looked like he was a goner. And yet, somehow, he survived. Not only that battle and that march, but then the mutiny on which he was the wrong side. And not just a battle and a march and a mutiny, but also a further attack by the Whites. Along the way, he killed said White and another as well, and he managed to save a girl and her son from certain death. If you can think of any more heroic journeys than that, I would love to hear them. Yet for re-readers, we know this is actually just going to be a pit stop at Castle Black for Sam. He'll soon be out on the road again, continuing his journey from basically as far north as you can go to as far south. No one else, aside from Gilly, can claim to have travelled so far in Westeros during this saga. But before he goes, he's going to use that bravery and at least hints of self-confidence he gained out in the wild to affect the future of the Night's Watch and the friend he thought he had lost in Jon Snow forever. And quick side note, you'll remember some weeks ago we talked about Sansa having the biggest POV gap in the book, 31 straight chapters without a POV from Sansa I believe was the mark, and we mentioned that Samuel Tarly comes in second place for this book, as this chapter bookends a 29 chapter POV gap. 29 chapters since Sam free when he and Gilly were attacked by the Whites, that's a pretty damn huge gap, even if he does steal from Bran a little bit along the way. Beginning into the chapter itself, right away George has a slavering for information as we learn that Sam and Gilly are with Val of all people and that they are all named Mr. Eamon. Given that we know next to nothing of the outcomes of the battle we saw just a chapter ago, the reader is desperate to catch up and connect all these dots. George is very clever in that way. In four quick paragraphs, we learn some pretty key items of info, all of them making us want to know more. First is that Sam is at Castle Black, as we said but we also learn that Mance's son has survived the battle, and that John did too. They're all together, but George does start giving answers straight away. First is how Sam and Gilly came to be back at Castle Black. What stands out first is that Sam and Gilly got almost the whole way on their own, only meeting with the other brothers a day and change away from Castle Black. From my best guesstimate, that means they walked nearly 100 miles straight along the wall. That's pretty insane. Very scarce food, sleeping on the ground, cold temperatures, although they probably seem warm considering where they've just come from, all whilst caring for a newborn. We really need to give Sam and Gilly more props for surviving such a journey. I know they've already come far, and the mental relief of being on the right side of the wall is huge, but remember, they had at least one horse for that part of the journey, and that plays a big role. Either way, it's no wonder Sam starts weeping when he actually sees his brothers. Part of it would be an overwhelming of emotion that he's actually made it back to a watch he's seen decimated on that march, seen tear itself apart at Craster's, or last saw as reanimated corpses. The fact that he sees Giant and Ed and former friends who likely fought dead, All the pure strangeness of seeing a friendly face at all, would definitely be overwhelming. And we ironically find that news has literally flown over Sam and Gilly's heads to reach the Shadow Tower and the returning garrison first, so they get to tell the tale to us, and Sam, rather than the other way around. He smashed them. Mance Raider was taken captive. A thousand of his best slain, including Harmer Dog's Head. The rest scattered like leaves before Storm, we heard. So that's our really key next part of the puzzle. Mance still lives. That keeps our interest real raised, as we want to know what will happen for him. But the numbers are also interesting. If we say Mance had a camp of 100,000, well, like we said earlier, he sent several factions off to Poker Eastwatch and the Shadow Tower Gorge, so that's a bit off the top. Sturr's men are also gone. John and Donalnoy managed to kill 200 of them, according to Mance and Tormund, and another 1,000 or so killed in Stannis' attack. I think he mentions later, another 1,000 had been taken captive or something like that. So that still leaves, what, 90,000 90, give or take, scattered like these stormy leaves, pouring back into the haunted forest. We know there's those captives, and a lot of them will be coming back through the wall later on, but this is setting up a truly awful time for the wildlings. We've already seen how bad a forced retreat can be from Sam's first chapter, but we'll have to wait until Varamyr's prologue to discover how utterly horrific these wildlings, a the majority of them women and children, have it as they scatter back into the wild. From a psychological standpoint, it seems they've been utterly defeated. They gave up everything, only to lose. Mance is gone, the dream of no more bleeding with it. They're confused, they don't know who's in charge, are they reforming for another attempt, are they going home, do they have a new target? Plus, there's the effect Stannis' absolute beatdown would have done. Most of them have never even heard of an attack or army of that nature, let alone seen it. Like I say, most of this won't come out until Varamyr's prologue, and then further along into Dance. But as rereaders, we really have to feel for the wildlings as a people. From there, we cover the return to Castle Black. And if it was striking enough for Jon when he returned, just because the place was quiet and there were a few weeds in the yard, the difference is even sharper for Sam, as we are reminded of the cost of Sturr's southern attack. The common hall had burned to the ground, and the great wooden stair was a mound of broken ice and scorched timbers. Don Anoy was dead, along with Rast, Deaf Dick, Red Allen, and so many more. Yet the castle was more crowded than Sam had ever seen it. Not with Black Brothers, but with the King's soldiers, more than a thousand of them. There was a King in the King's Tower for the first time in living memory, and banners flew from the Lance, Hardin's Tower, the Grey Keep, the Shield Hall, and other buildings that had stood empty and abandoned for long years. I also love the mention that Gilly has never seen banners before, given that they are such a core element of the world we've come to know so we not only cover the physical changes that stand out so much to Sam, but also the deaths he wasn't here to try and prevent. The majority of his friends have survived, but he's still lost brothers. We also get further information on Stannis moving in, and our first real chance to take a moment and realise, it worked, Davos' last-hitch attempt to Mace Draymond's letter, but a light of a sword that might have been used to execute him, worked, and Stannis hasn't just brought himself to save the Night's Watch, but all his assembled strength from the Crownlands and other places. Even more interestingly, he's brought Melisandre. We'll get plenty of this going forward, but the idea of the Fire Lady being brought not only to the land of ice, but a wall we know has massive magical elements to it, well, that really gets the reader going on the hunt for more Mel at the wall, hmm. and we want to see more of that. And we, thought the burning, and we thought the Burning Eagle was cool, we've got so much more to come. We also learned that someone was burned to gain them the winds to get the north, though we aren't told it's Alistair Florent yet, and that Melisandre actually went into battle this time. Both of those are pretty critical for increasing the clout of Melisandre and her Queen's men. Given the near-perfect timing of Stannis' arrival at Castle Black, people will say the winds that got them there were divine and required. The last time Stannis went into battle, without his Red Woman, he lost. This time, with Mel at his side, he scored a resounding victory. The propaganda writes itself. We skip over Sam's joyful reunions of Pip and Gren, but of course him finding Jon Snow deserves more focus. Jon Snow had smiled to see him too, but it was a tired smile, like the one he wore now. Though Maester Eamon said his wound was healing well, John bore other scars, deeper than the ones around his eye. He grieves for his wilding girl and for his brothers. We'll talk more on that brother's remark in a minute, but the wilding girl aspect is poignant. John is obviously very happy to discover Sam has not only survived, but returned, yet it's only human that the fact Sam has kept his wilding girlfriend alive where John hasn't would bother him. I wouldn't call it jealousy, more just another addition to the melancholy that John is carrying. Tired is the key word. As well as linking imperfectly to Aya's own mood, we can see that a John now removed from the fury of battle is just tired of the bullshit. He's sad about Egret dying. He's probably sad her people and her dream have ended in such a way. He protected Dalla, yet she still perished in childbirth. He was enemies with Mance, but at least respected him, and now he might be burnt. And all of this has occurred, and he's still labelled as a traitor and a turncloak because, because of the technicality that he didn't kill Mance. It's all just sadness. And quickly, while we're noting that Dalla died in, in childbirth, by the laws of a song of vice and fire, that means Mance's son is sure to become an important character, given the strands we already have of Daenerys, John, and Tyrion coming into the world in such a way. And Catelyn's mother died in childbirth too, even if it wasn't giving birth to her, so even more evident. When John and Sam are alone, John gives his old friend some advice on not setting himself up for hurt by believing he could keep Gilly. And it's actually a pretty straight conversation from the talk they had back in Clash of Kings when Gilly was first introduced, but it turns out Sam has already been considering this and comes out with this line. John, could there be honour in a lie if it were told for, for a good purpose? Now we're getting into the real thematic stuff. In this context, Sam is just thinking about it in terms of sending Gilly to Hornhill, but soon it's going to tie into his much larger interfering in the bid for Lord Commander. It's also going to tie into John's decisions as Lord Commander, some of them linking to Sam and Gilly specifically. It links into a lot of the ending of this book. Sansa is telling a lie about her name for a good purpose. Jamie is obsessed with lies, and Tyrion will tell a whopper, even if good purposes are left out there a bit. Daenerys has just had to deal with two different kinds of lies from her two knights, one told for good purposes, one told for personal gain. It's a theme for the entire series, and for people in the real world too, a question that comes to all of us as we grow up. But it's brilliant that Sam is asking this question to Jon specifically. For what was the life of Eddard Stark, if not a lie told for a good purpose? For what was the life of Eddard Stark? if not a lie, told for a good purpose. That's literally the product that is John. Do you see what I mean about this being questioned for the whole saga? We get a bit more info on Sam's baby-stashing plan. John's part in the battle that he likely feels is not glorious or honourable, but still critical in terms of him capturing the horn. And how ironic is it that the real one has just walked back into Castle Black, with all its possible dangers, if we do if we do indeed believe that is the real one. But we also get our first real inkling of a new Lord Commander being chosen, and we hear Alistair Fawn has dropped out of the race because everyone hates him. That's nice for us to hear, but it also means he's added his support to Janos Slint, and there are about a billion reasons why we would not want him, Slint, to gain such a title. But Jon's bitterness is also expanded on. He's not only being called a turncloak, but everyone is bringing up his bastardry again, now they're adding in that he's a warg. He says if they are searching for reasons to hate and exclude him, the exclusion thing is a pretty big part of his personality already. And the fact that he doesn't even have ghost anymore makes that particular insult, makes that particular insult a much more salt in the wound type uh, type thing. He even describes his crit dreams to Sam, which is pretty rare, he doesn't normally talk about them, before going off to work his frustration out with a sword. And remember a little while ago we talked about John being more physical and aggressive after Egret's death. Only last week he was trying to follow Sir Alice of Thorn, remember? Then again, wouldn't you? We'll talk more about John's training in the next chapter. In witnessing John's pain, Sam's own guilt surfaces as we find out what went down on his parting with Bran and company. It tore the heart from Sam to hold his silence then. Bran's not dead, John, he wanted to say. Three times he had sworn to keep the secret. Once to Bran himself? Once to that strange boy, and Reed? And last of all, to cold hands. And now those lies of good purposes bring on a whole new meaning, don't they? Sam is likely telling himself it's not a lie if he just doesn't bring it up at all. But it's still very painful for him and another of those choosing which oaths to follow type conundrums. Sam obviously wants to make John feel better, but the debt must be paid to cold hands, so Sam stays true. This is just one of those mental things to consider though, when we think that Sam sails away without ever telling John, and that John never finds out the truth about his brother, the last of his family, as far as he knows. We then get further information on the voting process, discovering any candidate needs 66% of the total vote to win. We don't get information on what percentage the candidates have, we do get their totals i guess you could work out if you really want to but maths is not my forte so i didn't we do get a rundown of all the candidates and you have to love pip and his japes and the fact that no one is near acceptance level yet dennis manister and carter pike are the two big dogs by some margin that makes sense you'd expect the two commanders of the western and eastern castles to always be a large presence in these votes given their seniority and clearly proven record so there's a sense of tradition there as well as each of them obviously having large pools of supporters but this is also a clear time of change in the wall hence janos slint is ever gaining while everyone else is falling, no matter how much Sam is convinced a man like that could never win. At any other time, he's probably right, but these are far from normal times. The tension rises during the voting scene as Janos consolidates that little group of people who will soon come to vex Jon Snow in the Dance of Dragons. Shrewdly, someone has realised that Cotterpike and Denny's Manister will bleed off Castle Black votes to one or the other unless the Castle Black candidates stop splitting their own vote and band together. Incidentally, there's still some things to be learned by this process. Having friends vote for their friends, the fact that Denny's and Cotto can vote for their own garrisons might not make it the most accurate of votes. Still, we shouldn't complain, given this is pretty much the most democratic system we've yet come across in the series. is scheming and buddying up and cronyism works. He takes a huge leap of 63 votes in a single day. He's clearly been able to convince the officers and many voters, if not him, then definitely one of the other two on the Outsiders could win, and that could take weeks. Sam is sort of kidding himself just because Janos is still in third place. The point is, Slint now looks like a viable option, he is only going to gain. And the more I think about it, there really isn't a worse candidate for Lord Commander, considering the troubles that are headed towards the Wall. This scene also highlights to me that all these candidates, especially those from Castle Black, are the ones that got to stay home nice and safe, while all the others went off on the Great Ranging. Almost no officers returned, and a great majority of them died heroically, serving the Watch, from Corran Halfhand to Forrin Smallwood. There's no mention of them here, it's just the Crows coming early for their feast. The chapter closes with Sam finally just having the opportunity... The chapter closes, with Sam finally just having the opportunity to hang with the guys after all he's been through, but he's maintaining a focused mind because he's realised the key maths here. If we want to take the anyone but Janos view, then Slint is still massively outnumbered, but only if the two adversaries link up and agree that anyone is better than Janos, rather than they specifically would be better than Janos. And we see Sam makes the progression from someone should talk to them, to we should talk to them, and we will slowly come around to the idea that even he could do it if he could just sort out his bravery. That's a nice reflection on Sam still not wanting to talk to a senior officer, even after everything he's been through. We know he's going to conquer this roadblock in his next chapter, but it's still a poignant time for Gren to be awesome again. And Sam the Slayer, said Gren, you slew another. And I just love that Gren keeps championing this, even though he never mentions his own role in that ordeal. It's just great timing. If Sam can do that, he can do this. We're going to leave Sam there. We'll be back with him next week for his last chapter. But now we're going to take the very short trip over to John's mind again for our last chapter of the day. It's John 11. Like I say, our final chapter of the day, our third at Castle Black, and our second from John's point of view. And it begins with John continuing his mentorship of Satin, this time in the training yard. And I'm actually going to refer back to a quote from the Sam chapter we just finished. That was where John Snow spent most of his waking hours. With Sir Andrew dead and Sir Alistair disinterested, Castle Black had no master at arms. So John had taken it on himself to work with some of the raw recruits. And when they had duties, he would train alone for hours with sword and shield and spear, or match himself against anyone who cared to take him on. We've already discussed how John is using this physical activity to work through his emotional frustration and sadness at the moment. Though it also doubles as a great way to get him back in shape, and just get him back to something he knows. He's been sparring his whole life, and he's been good at it. It probably feels a little different now after True Battle, but still. We'll see him continue this practice throughout being Lord Commander as well, but it also has me thinking in an alternate reality, John would have been a superb fit as Master at Arms for Castle Black. Or, let's go one better, and say that he felt welcomed at Winterfell and never felt the need to leave and the, the war never happened either. Let's imagine him taking over for Sir Roderick Cassell, a sure place of honour as so he teaches Bran, and then Recon, and then Rob's sons, and the future lords of Winterfell how to wield their sword. Alas Alarms, that's our Alas Alarms of the day, what could have been? It at least highlights how good John is as a teacher and a role model. Nice to notice just before he enters a position, where those traits could turn out to be useful. The scene with Saturn ends quickly though, as we come to not one, but two incredibly important meetings, both for John as a person, but also maybe the fate of the world as well. And first up is John meeting Melisandre, the red woman, for the very first time. He had glimpsed Melisandre at her night fires, and coming and going about the castle, but never so close. She's beautiful, he thought, but there was something more than a little unsettling about red eyes. Given how dance ends, and the widely popular theories of how Melisandre might be involved with rectifying that end, this is a pretty important first meeting. But these two cross paths plenty more before we head into the unknown of the Winds of Winter, and Melisandre is obviously going to be a huge effect on the wall going forwards, so we really should pay attention here. Jon, being as observant as ever, instantly realises that Melisandre is really the one ruling beside Stannis, not Selyse. Perhaps more importantly, he recognises her beauty, but is wary about what lies underneath. Good instincts there, Jon. On the way to the top of the wall, we get this interaction between the two. What does His Grace want of me? Jon asked her as they enter the cage. All you have to give, Jon Snow. He is a king. And that instantly makes me think of Jon's dance dialogue about kings wanting more and more, the more that you give. It says to me that Stannis will ask more of Jon than is possible for anyone. Just before we get to Stannis, Jon discovers more of Melisandre's extracurriculars. She's incredibly warm to the touch. She's not cold despite wearing very few layers, and her ruby is pulsing. We know what that means by now. So is it working overtime to keep her warm, or is this its reaction to being so close to a magical resource like the wall? We know not yet, but it's clear Jon has gotten the measure of Melisandre as not quite normal. Before they exit the cage, Melisandre mentions only death is cold. Now, remember, at the end of Dance, John never feels the fall from life, only the cold, so we're getting connections all over here. And quick as that, we're on to the second important meeting of the chapter, John Snow meeting Stannis Baratheon, so often painted as two kings and the two main candidates in defending the realms of humanity and life itself against the oncoming invasion of the others. And like we mentioned a few weeks ago who could have actually ever seen this coming the beginning of this book would you have said john snow was going to meet stannis Baratheon? no there's no setup. there's no way you could have fought that through um game of thrones or clash of kings or, or half of storm of swords either but now we really get the sense of moving into the later stages of the saga here and surprise surprise we meet stannis brooding over the battle so john has something to bond with his new buddy over because he likes a good old brood as well a much better bonding experience and one that instantly gets stannis into our good books is his instant belief of Jon Snow's story. A big part of Janos Slint's quick rise and grip on the watch is that he is a new kid from a different school. He can tell whatever story he likes and no one can correct him because no one was in the big city with him, hence his success in charming or winning over the other officers. Except here comes someone who was in the big city school and was a way bigger fish. Stannis knows the truth about Jonos Slint and even more lovingly knew the truth of Eddard Stark, so he puts two and two together and makes himself Team Jon. Besides, Stannis is a bottom line kind of man. He isn't going to suffer made-up, heavily biased bullshit. He wants the truth and figures he can find it in John, who critically doesn't try and excuse himself or make any concessions. He lays it all out flat, just as Stannis himself would. Remember, John has had so many interactions with different people of power that it seems second nature. Only three chapters ago, he was negotiating with a different kind of king, so why shouldn't he be able to talk to this one too? Stannis is also a man who gives credit where it's due, which he does over John discovering the dragon glass, John defending the wall, John delivering the horn, despite John's own protests. He also gives Donald Noy some much-needed appreciation, not just for his part in the war warfare, but in terms of his leadership skills. That doesn't get mentioned basically at all, so Stannis is really getting on our good side now. The conversation continues, with Stannis doing some critical research into the Wildlings from the person who would know best. He's likely already asked similar questions to the officers of the Night's Watch and found them to be the fools he claims they are except for Eamon, but I don't remember right now Stannis and Eamon actually talk. I'll have to watch for that as we go, seeing as Stannis is Eamon's great-grandnephew, I think. But then I don't think Stannis is ever actually informed of that fact, considering Eamon is being bundled off with Sam in a little bit. Something to think of, though. I also really like Jon's comments on Mance, Tormund, and the Wildings in general. Even if he is no longer part of them, and still mourns Aiguit's fate, he seems to have found a comforting respect for them, and Stannis is smart enough to listen. Way more interesting than that, Jon actually gets Stannis to smile, and... How many can say they've done that, really? We have this from Stannis. I had the cart before the horse, Davos said. I was trying to win the throne to save the kingdom, and I should have been trying to save the kingdom to win the throne. So Stannis keeps on with the giving credit stuff where it's due with Davos, but the conversation also turns to the others and the real reason for coming north. So after three books of people almost exclusively denying their existence or just trying to run away from them, we now have someone who has come specifically to fight them. It's pretty refreshing, and like I said earlier on, we're getting that sense of moving up a notch on the saga scale but before Stannis can look north, he must turn around and look back at at the north, and the real reason for the meeting comes out. If this conversation were a duel, it would be all slashes and attacks from Stannis, and parries from Jon. Right from the beginning, Jon tries to push away what he's done for the wall, what happened with the worldlings, and now the possibility of reigniting Winterfell for Stannis' gains. But Stannis is relentless, those slashes keep coming, and one eventually gets through Jon's defences. I need a son of Eddard Stark to win them to my banner. He would make me Lord of Winterfell, Jon thought. From there, we get into very contentious ground. Melisandre comes in for the double team and speaks the truth about kings being able to legitimise whenever they feel like it. If that can happen to Ramsay, then why not Jon? But even that is rocky ground. Can it literally be any king? Because Stannis still actually owns Storm's End and Dragonstone and that's about it. Or does it work if you are the true king and a pretender sits the Iron Throne? There's a lot of angles to look at it from, but it gets worse beyond that when Melisandre makes the suggestion that because Jon's vows were said in front of heart trees and R'hllor is the only true god, the vows don't count. Now we're really getting off the reservation a bit. That's never been suggested before. There's obviously no precedence for it, and it only works if you happen to support R'hllor. The majority of people don't, and to say that Jon has a particular affinity with those heart trees, as a Stark, and considering they are in the North, the place of the strongest connection to its regional religion, basically this sounds like a dodgy sale from the Red Woman. I never wanted this, he thought as he stood before the blue-eyed king and the Red Woman. I loved Rob, loved all of them. I never wanted any harm to come to any of them, but it did, and now there's only me. All he had to do was say the word, and he would be John Stark, and never more Snow. All he had to do was pledge this king his fealty, and Winterfell was his. All he had to do was forswear his vows again. So we come to an arguably important part of Jon Snow's arc. His true desire for Winterfell as a child, the guilt of said desire, and a renewal of said guilt now now that he happens to be the only one left. Does that mean he would be honouring them by taking back what they lost? Or would they see it as him stealing from them? It's an incredibly personal, deep and emotional part of Jon, one that connects back to his very first chapter and that feeling of unwelcomeness. It's always been with him, as have those dreams of Winterfell. But there's a problem beyond that, breaking vows. The whole thing he was forced to do in Clash and through this book that caused him so much heartache, that caused others so much heartache. No doubt he attributes Egret's death to such, and this is still in the theoretical. John kind of glosses over the fact that Melisandre would require him not just to burn the heart trees in the grove above the wall, she would also make him burn THE heart tree, the one in the godswood of Winterfell, our, like, favourite place. One of my favourite... No, not one of. My favourite place in the whole series. Remember how we spoke about that Godswood? How Tyrion could feel the unwelcomeness of ages in it. How Theon left it alone. How even Ramsay and Roose will leave it alone. They know not to mess with it. John already has dreams of disapproval and being unwelcome from the statues in the crypt. What the hell would he be dreaming of if he burned the heart tree? Ned's heart tree. Bottom line, he wouldn't. John would never find it in himself to do that, ever. There's just too much Stark and Northerner in him. Besides, he's also smart enough to know if he ever did that, the hope of any of the North rallying back around Winterfell just wouldn't happen. Let's go back to Stannis here. And the more we bleed each other, the weaker we shall all be when the real enemy falls upon us. Jon had come to that same realisation. As you say, your grace. In between the talk of prizes and incentives, Stannis reveals that he gets the larger point, perhaps the largest point, that these old grudges and divides are only going to help the others in the long run. Like John, he knows that the Wildlings have to get past the Wall, not only to save their lives, but because otherwise the grand enemy will be all the stronger. So he tells us he intends to let the Wildings through the Wall and settle upon the gift, something that would sound like tantamount madness to almost any northern lord. So while much of the focus will go on John in Dance for actually getting this done, we should also remember Stannis was the first to float the idea. Also to note, the whole idea has another caveat in taking on the Lord of Light, or else. So while Stannis does have the end goal in mind, he quibbles over such details just as much as Mance, even if he won't admit it. And we can see the results of Mance's previous discussion with Jon about not kneeling. He's keeping true to that word, no matter who's asking, no matter the price. It seems Jon alone is the one to see that no details matter in truth, the wildlings must be saved. Stannis switches back to the incentives, although with Stannis, you can never be sure if he's trying to persuade or if he's just listing simple fact, especially in regard to this last part of the deal. Perhaps Jon had ridden with the free folk too long. He could not help but laugh. Your grace, he said, captive or no, if you think you can just give vow to me, I fear you have a deal to learn about wildling women. Whoever weds her best be prepared to climb her tower window and carry her off at sword point. Perhaps Stannis has arrived with the right idea, and with a million more swords and power than anyone else at the wall, but it's still clear this is not his arena. He doesn't know the ins and outs of either the Wall or the Wildlings. So it's just a massive smack in the face how John is that guy. He's an Northerner, he's a Watchman, he's at least part Wildling now. He does know why and how they work, those ins and outs. It's why he has to be the one to make this all come together. He has to be the saviour of an entire race of people. But that is all for later. John doesn't even really focus on the fact that this could all end with him marrying the beautiful Val, who he at least seems friendly with so far. Egret is still a bit too close for him to be thinking of such. And he instead keeps Winterfell at the forefront of his mind as does Stannis for the chapter close. But when you return, you need only bend your knee, lay your sword at my feet, and pledge yourself to my service, and you shall rise again as John Stark, the Lord of Winterfell. John Stark, need we say more. That is such a huge, momentous, world-changing thing that it's really hard to encapsulate it in words. The full weight of the decision-making is going to be covered next week in John's final chapter, but still, just saying that name, John Stark, is pretty incredible. Remember, in today's opening chapter, John didn't even think he was going to live out the day. All he's known of late is difficult betrayal and war, death and tiredness. In the space of today's episode, he's not only gone from certain defeat to actually winning a war, but from dead man walking to possibly gaining a life he hasn't thought remotely possible since he was a child and definitely impossible since the opening of Game of Thrones. This is as big as they come in terms of forks in the Westerosi world and it's an incredibly dense and emotional moment where Jon's past and future intersect flawlessly. His last is a beautiful moment, so we look forward to that and just settle down to appreciate the awesomeness that is Stannis in the North. Finally, somebody gets it. And that is our close today. That's the end of John twelve, as the end of part sixteen of Storm of Swords. Just one more to go everybody, one more. So next week, as if I need to remind you, we come to the end, and uh well, this is what we're going to get. We start with Tyrion eleven, the final Tyrion chapter with what might be the biggest acts in the book. Yeah, that's what we're starting with, can you imagine? Well. We then move on to Sam five, Sam's final chapter and all his um intercedings in what's going on in the future of Castle Black. Then on to John 12, John's final chapter, his decision of what's going on here and his future being laid out for definite. We finish A Storm of Swords with Sansa 6, one of the most revealing, most important chapters ever for, for total looking back at Game of Thrones and how everything's coming. Wow, yeah, that's how they finish, Sansa gets that honour. Except not, we get one more afterwards because we have our very first A Song of Ice and Fire epilogue with Merit Frey and, uh, well, I get to see my favourite character again. Not Not in the way i might like but you know i'll take what i can get so we look forward to that it's going to be next week i think that'll probably be quite a long one if i'm going to guess in the meantime you'll have a sporkle spectacular with you soon enough whether you're a patron or public if you are a patron you'll have my little bonus episode of my attempt with lady buckley asking me questions and don't forget all our different shout outs today brotherhood without manners they're coming on board for sporkle spectacular Radio Westross have their first Winds of Winter Primer, uh, Streams of Winter, that's the name, that's the one I like, with Aziz, of course, so, I mean, what more can you ask? And for more thoughts on Sandor again and everything about him, go to Chloe, at Lies and Harbour, Girls Gone kind of, you know the way. Alright, prepare yourselves, everybody. We will see you next week for the end of the Storm of Swords. I, I, I keep saying that, and it doesn't seem quite real. We'll see you then.